You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO Magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guests this week are Ben Burgess and John Rosen. Ben Burgess is a philosophy professor at Georgia State University Perimeter College, and he is the author of the recently published book, Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, which Matt McManus uh, reviewed for ARIO magazine. I'll put the link in the show notes. He also has a regular weekly segment on the Michael Brooks show called The Debunk, and he contributes a regular weekly column to Jacobin magazine. And John Rosen earned his doctorate in philosophy from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and his thesis focused on questions involving self-consciousness, personal agency, and self-constitution. Um, and he runs the Facebook discussion group Fair Game, designed to facilitate civil discourse, which I highly recommend everybody joins. And I'll put links to anything that we talk about or mention that has an appropriate link. I will place all of those links in the show notes, as usual. The impetus for this podcast came from a letter exchange which the two, which Ben and John had on the platform, Letter. And as many of you know, I have, I was an early adopter of the platform, which is a really lovely, digital site website and also app which allows you to write one-on-one letters to each other publicly so it's like a, a like a kind of old-fashioned letter correspondence except that it's it's in digital form and it's public so anyone can read it but unlike twitter it, the conversation cannot be derailed by third parties. There's no comment function. There's no like function. There's no way of downvoting or, um, or making snarky comments about. You can share the, you can share your conversations later on other social media, but within letter itself, you will just be having a one on one conversation with other with someone else or reading other people's one-on-one letter conversations. And we are currently hosting a competition called the Impossible Conversations Competition. I'll link to that in the show notes too. There will be a shared $2,500 prize for the two correspondents who have the most civil and productive conversation across a major divide, a major political or ideological divide. And to enter, just sign up, both of you, and start writing to each other. And if you want to enter, or if you want to use letter in general, but you don't have a correspondent, then just either write to me, um, I'll put my address in the show notes, 
or you can sign in and we have a letter in a bottle function. And in the letter in a bottle, you can put your letter that doesn't yet have a recipient and we will try to find somebody for you. And I would just like to remind you, because I know some people have been reading letters and enjoying the platform, but haven't signed up because you don't yet, you aren't yet planning to actually write a correspondence to anyone. As usual with these kinds of small startup companies, if you want us to survive, we need you to sign up. Uh, even if you don't plan to write a letter, it's free. If you like the service, if you enjoy what we're doing, if you think it's valuable, sign up. Sign-ups mean more likelihood of guaranteed funding and for us to continue being viable long-term. So, and um, in addition to the letter, additional letter exchange, I wrote an article for ARIO magazine um, detailing John and Ben's exchange. I had quite a long conversation on Skype with John. Thank you so much. And read some of his other um I think unpublished work, which I really want you to write up so that I can publish it in ARIO. And Ben has written a response to my initial article and also a further article about the Libet experiment's failure to replicate and the implications of that for the whole free will debate, which we'll come on to later. Thank you so, so much, both of you, for having invested so much time and goodwill in this uh, in this whole ongoing conversation. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's lovely to have you. I think um, maybe we could begin by um, talking about the defining the terms of the debate. There are several rather confusing terminologies here. And it might be good to outline those to begin with and then just say basically what your position is, Ben, and then what John's position is. And I largely agree with John, but I'm not a professional philosopher, so I will be the dumb layperson here. <laughs> so, Ben, tell me about the different positions. There's libertarian free will, which has nothing to do with a political party, semi-compatibilism, compatibilism, and incompatibilism or determinism. Can we just run through those, Ben, or either? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you're, and you've written very intelligently about this. So uh, I think your, your uh, you know, attempt to be to uh, play the role of, of a dumb person hasn't, uh, hasn't worked. But in any case, um, I, uh, so... Free will, uh, and you know, is, is one of these uh, philosophical concepts that, of course, you know, we always want to start. Uh, a lot of people in many contexts have a reasonable impulse to start by defining their terms. And one one problem here is, of course, that one of the main things, really, I think, in philosophy, the main thing that's in dispute is what we mean when we talk about uh, free will, because. Uh, you know the main uh, the main sort of reason to worry about free will is uh, physical determinism, uh, which is roughly the view that everything that ever happens is the only thing that could have happened given uh, previous physical states of the world. So uh, the same way that if you push over a domino and this, that first domino 
knocks over a second domino and the second domino over knocks over a third. It's not that the third domino might knock over the fourth domino or maybe the fourth domino will turn around and knock over the third. It's that the third domino will knock over the fourth domino. And determinism is roughly the claim that everything is like that, that um, all physical processes and events in the world, which would very much include the ones going on in the human brain when we make decisions, uh, are deterministic, that given that the cause has happened, the effect can't fail to happen. Um, and I think there are a couple reasons to think to like to worry that something like that might be true. Um, and maybe we can get into those more later, but just real briefly, one of them is that we just assume it when we're talking about anything except for human decisions and actions. If I, uh, if my car stops working and the mechanic tells me that there was nothing wrong with the brakes, there was nothing wrong with the, uh, the engine, there was nothing wrong with the alternator, there was nothing wrong with the belts, the, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It just stopped working. I wouldn't think, oh my goodness, I just learned something new about how the universe works. Sometimes things happen for no reason. I would think that I don't have a very good mechanic. Um, and so the question is, uh, well, all right, if determinism is generally true, are uh, the decision-making processes that go on in human brains going to be special magical exceptions to these general deterministic laws? And if not, what does that mean about free will? And there are you know, three basic views, um, or really two basic views. One of them is incompatibilism and the other is compatibilism. So according to incompatibilism, if determinism is true, then there's no such thing as free will. Um, and according to compatibilism, even if determinism is true, there could be such a thing as free will. Uh, most contemporary compatibilists are compatibilists about both determinism and indeterminism, meaning that uh, they, we think that uh, if determinism is true, no problem, we still have free will. If indeterminism is true, no problem, we still have free will. So uh, John Martin Fisher is a compatibilist philosopher who likes to talk about how uh, one of the advantages of compatibilism is that you know, your belief in the existence of free will and hence moral responsibility aren't hanging on a thread waiting to hear what the quantum the uh, physicists decide about which interpretation of quantum physics is correct and whether it's a deterministic one or an indeterministic one because from their perspective, it doesn't matter. Either way, uh, we have free will. Uh, and incompatibilism uh, comes in a couple of different varieties. So, so the most straightforward kind of incompatibilism, which is confusingly sometimes called hard determinism, says that, uh, well, determinism is true, therefore we don't have free will. Um, there's also a form of incompatibilism, uh, sometimes called hard incompatibilism, uh, which uh, to make it less like that's the technical term in the literature, hard incompatibilism. Uh, in the articles that I've written for you guys, I have uh, referred to this view as like two-way incompatibilism because I think that makes a little, the idea a little bit clearer. So the same way that most compatibilists think we have free will, whether or not determinism is true, the two-way incompatibilist thinks that free will is incompatible with determinism and it's also incompatible with indeterminism. So either way, we don't have free will. And then the final kind of incompatibilism is libertarianism, which, again, is confusing uh, because, um, you know, very oftentimes 
in my experience, like if, you know, if I teach about this stuff, students will Google key terms, which I always warn them not to do in this case, because uh, <laughs> it has absolutely nothing. And they come up with Ayn Rand. Yeah, exactly. They come up with <laughs> Ayn Rand and, you know, Hayek and the Libertarian Party and all these things that have absolutely nothing to do with it, right? So there's libertarianism as a political position, um, but there's also libertarianism as a metaphysical position about free will, which is a totally different thing. The libertarian in that sense uh, says that we do have exactly the kind of free will that we might have hoped we had uh, before we started worrying about determinism, that uh, I can I can do something I'm that even given everything that's happened in the previous history of the universe, there are at least some instances we can get into this because there are there are more and less sophisticated versions of libertarianism that say different things about how often this happens. Uh, but at least sometimes I can do things such that even given everything that's ever happened in the physical history of the universe, it would have been possible for me to do otherwise. I, I do a, I could have done not a uh, instead. Um, and so I guess, um, I guess the, the, what I would say about this, can I jump in for Please. a sec here? Um, so I, I just want to get clear on the indi- on the uh, libertarianist view. Yeah. Um, as, as you just – and by the way, everything you've laid out so far has been really, really nice. So thank you for setting it up like this. Um, on the libertarianist view, are they – so my understanding is that um, they are denying uh, determinism. Yes. Right? That's right. That's right. So the libertarian – might in fact actually this is a this is a really uh, helpful question because something I find people who are new, completely new to the debate are often very confused about so like people who are listening to this who haven't heard these positions before um, because they're often confused by this in a couple of ways that are important one of the which is that when they hear that the libertarian is denying determinism they think that the libertarian must be denying like saying that like nothing is deterministic and of course nobody actually thinks that right like that would be a crazy position like uh, everybody thinks that lots of physical processes are at least roughly deterministic um whatever turns out to be oh Um, could i just uh, reframe this a bit because i think this might be confusing sure so by deterministic what we mean is that things are predictable so if i Given enough knowledge about the state of how things are at this present moment, if I had some kind of vast um, computer or if I could chew enough, drink enough Sappho juice or um, whatever, yeah. uh, I could mm-hmm. come up with a 42 answer. You know, I could, com- I, I could, if I knew everything about exactly how things are at this moment, I could predict how they would be in 10 minutes, in 10 years, in 10 centuries. That's the, that's the idea of determinism. And everyone agrees, everybody, complete, absolutely everybody, uh, agrees that some things are determined. So um, if I throw a ball into the air, it's going to come down. Um, if if um, I set... Uh, a set of dominoes tumbling, one domino is going to knock over the next. So that's deterministic. And indeterminacy in physics means that some things we can't predict because um, there are random processes at a quantum level. And this is what 
Einstein was referring to when he said God doesn't play dice with the universe. Exactly. Was, yeah. And what libertarians think is that some things are determined, obviously, some things are subject to physical laws, and others are undetermined, such as whether I choose to have chocolate or vanilla ice cream right now. And that, that those things that are not determined by the physical laws, at least some of those things, are completely within my own free choice. So it's libertarian just from the word liberty. I'm at freedom. I'm I'm at freedom. I'm at liberty to to choose. That's right. Which ice cream flavor I pick, for example. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. So it's that um yeah, so according to some interpretations of uh quantum physics, uh the way that I mean of course most things are actually unpredictable because we just don't know enough, but according to some interpretations of quantum physics, the uh, Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics once you get down to subatomic particles, particles that are smaller than atoms, some of the behavior of those, uh, like protons and electrons, is in principle unpredictable. Even you know, even an omniscient being, even a being that knew everything there was to know, or that that amazing supercomputer or whatever that knew the current position of every particle in the universe or all that, wouldn't know uh, what it was going to do. Maybe they their behavior is probabilistic, but not. Um, but not deterministic. It's, it, it wouldn't be able to predict it with 100% certainty. Uh, and the reason I think it's worth clarifying is that the position I'm going to be defending, compatibilism, is one that a lot of people, um, a lot of people's first reaction to that is it can't possibly be right, right? It, it, it seems very counterintuitive on first glance. And, you know, if you're John, it seems very counterintuitive on 900th glance. But um, But it's... For people who find it counterintuitive on that first glance, uh, then oftentimes what they'll do is they'll try to sort of reinterpret it in their heads into something that makes more sense to them, uh, which can be a very dangerous thing in this case because you end up just missing what people are saying. So when people say – when the compatibilist says um, that even if determinism is completely true, uh, we still have free will – people sort of hear it as, oh, okay, well, that doesn't make any sense because obviously free will and determinism are incompatible. So what they must be saying is even if, like, most things are determined, then there are some in, there are some indeterministic exceptions, and that's where the free will is. But that's not compatibilism. That would actually be the libertarian position. Where you know, What the compatibilist is saying is that even if we live in a deterministic worst-case scenario, that, like, literally that supercomputer that you were talking about would be able to predict with absolute certainty every single thing that would ever happen, no exceptions. Even then, some of those determined actions would still count as free because uh, the wacky thing that compatibilists are actually saying is that uh, is that there's no conceptual conflict between those. That you know that something can be the same decision can be both uh, completely determined and at least in some sense completely free. I think we can, uh, we all agree, right? That it doesn't matter, uh, whether the physics doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether the Copenhagen interpretation, I'm not sure which that one is, is true or not, whether everything is completely determined and predictable or whether there's a qu- randomness at the quantum level that makes things indeterminate. Am I correct? Because John and I both think 
in either case, we don't have free will. And you think in either case, we do have free will. Am I right? Yes. Yes, that's right. So there are, there are lots of people who are, who are in between those positions. Um, you know, well, not lots of people, but there are, you know, but, uh, you know, there are libertarians who, who disagree with, with both me and with you guys. And they think that like, so like just to, just to give that position it's due, like somebody like Robert Kane, uh, that's with a, a K A N E, uh, has the position that, uh, he thinks that because there really is this quantum indeterminateness in human brains, that there are some situations in which, uh, there are, uh, when we're maybe, maybe our, we're, our decision-making is equally balanced between two drives that are like in competition with each other. And so there's nothing that determines which one wins. Uh, he thinks that those are these self-determining, uh, these self de- self-forming decisions, which like set our characters and that, um, and that because those decisions are truly free in a way he doesn't think they would be if determinism were true, then um, everything else that we do when we're just sort of determined, our actions are determined by our characters counts as free. Uh, so I just wanted to put that out there as like an interesting position that some people have. But yeah, you're right. That, uh, my position is that it doesn't matter because either way we have free will. Your position is that it doesn't matter. And John's position is it doesn't matter because either way we don't have free will. So maybe we can put Kane to one side for the rest of this discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, these waters can get muddy in a hurry. Um, and I'm curious as to how, how best to proceed here. Um, so as to avoid the muddiness. Um, I mean, Ben, you know, your compatibilist claim uh, is definitely worth diving into and exploring. Um, but I don't know if, if, the, if we, I mean, oh, I was, so my suggestion was that maybe, uh, maybe John, uh, could talk about some of the reasons to think that free will and determinism uh, are are incompatible because I think there are some fairly obvious reasons to think that, um, and then that would be like a, a good you know kind of staging ground for thinking about the different possible views, right? So like, because in some ways, um, like in some ways, I think that like if if I'm going to explain why I think that um, you know we're in control of our actions and uh, at least sometimes and that we have, that we're at least sometimes in control of our actions in the right way to be morally responsible for them, which I think is a pretty decent uh, one sentence, not very informative summary of what I mean by free will. Then the case for that is, is pretty straightforward and uninteresting. You know, in other words, like I think that um, the reason to think that, at least some people are sometimes morally responsible for their actions uh, comes from just thinking about cases, right? That, uh, that there are all sorts of cases in which we're all initially inclined to think that people are responsible for their actions. Uh, And I think that the, and, um, and my, once I start really thinking, okay, but what if determinism is true? That doesn't really change that. But where I think things get interesting is when you start to get into the kind of arguments that I think might move someone like John to disagree. So, you know, in other words, like... So I'm going to just uh, slightly object to that approach because you're assuming that everybody listening here is a philosopher. I think that only two people here are philosophers, you and John. So I'm going to, as a non-philosopher, I think we should just leave this whole question of 
determinism and indeterminism, we should put that aside because we both ag- we all agree that it's not important. Um, that whether or not there's quantum indeterminacy, that makes no difference to our arguments. So I think the simplest place to begin with is with with John, why you don't think that we have free will. And then, Ben, I want you to get into the cases where you think we do, or in an ethically meaningful way, we do. I mean, the 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 usual intuition is that, of course, we have free will. We all feel as though we do, right? I mean, when I go to the ice cream parlor, I feel like I don't know whether I'm going to choose which flavors I'm going to choose. And I feel as though I'm free to choose whatever flavors I want at that moment. That is my, that is my psychological perception. So the common sense, the common sense position is that we have free will. But the common sense position is also um, that the sun goes around the earth. You know, many things are an illusion, which seem to, uh, to us to be obvious, basic common sense. And I think, and John thinks, I guess, free will is one of these. So maybe we can begin with, since it seems like we have free will, what are the arguments for us not having free will? And let's turn this over to John, because he has not had enough airtime. I'm happy to to jump in there. I I think a couple more terms uh, should be defined, but why don't I just address your question first? I think one of the things that's uh, really interesting about this problem, um, Kant, Kant, Emmanuel Kant points this out um, in the uh, Critique of Pure Reason, is that there are actually contradictory um, intuitions here, right? So on one hand, I go to the ice cream uh, store and I have to choose um, what kind of ice cream I want. Um, And I have an extremely powerful um, you might say experience of choosing, you know, that, you know, oftentimes, um, the experience of choosing, of deliberating, of making up our minds can be pretty painful. Um, and that's why some philosophers, like for example, Sartre, you know, talk about freedom, uh, as something that we are, that, that we're condemned, so to speak, to be free, that there's an inescapable character of having to choose or having to make up our mind. So that's certainly, um, part of our experience and something that we can't just kind of explain. Well, maybe we can explain away, but we can't explain it away experientially. Um, we're stuck, so to speak, with this um, with this necessity of, of choosing. Um, so that's one part of our intuition, and our intuition kind of calls out this um, this sense of being free very strongly. On the other hand, when we explain our behavior or explain the behavior of other people, we do so by ascribing uh, to people, you know, certain causal stories. So if I want to explain why Iona does X or why Ben does Y, I'm going to give a causal account, right? Um, I'm never going to say, well, there's no good reason. There's no good reason. There's no good explanation. There must be some explanation. So the approach I'm going to take to explaining someone's behavior is actually going to resemble um, the example that Ben brought up earlier about the auto mechanic, right? So um, I'm, it's never going to be the point, it's never going to be the case where I'm going to say, well, there's simply no possible explanation for why Iona did X or Ben did Y, except for 
maybe some kind of miraculous, spontaneous uh, decision. Um, I mean, some people might say that, but as we'll see, it doesn't really make much sense. It would it would seem be, to be on par with saying, well, there was just some spontaneous, inexplicable mechanical fa- failure that the car had. Um, but, you know, a mechanical understanding of the way cars work, that kind of understanding doesn't really make much space for that kind of explanation. A mechanic, you know, a responsible mechanic is never going to say there's simply no good explanation for why this happened. You know, if, if a mechanic were to say that, you'd think, as Ben said, he wasn't a very good mechanic. So I just want to point out these, these sort of contradictory intuitions we have about behavior. Um, on one hand, we have this very practical or experiential sense that we have to choose and that it's entirely, so to speak, up to us to almost spontaneously generate conclusions or decisions. On the other hand, on the other hand in retrospect, when we evaluate our behavior or the behavior of other people, we offer a kind of causal account. So I, I just want to point that out. Um, uh, now, your question was, you know, why don't I think free will uh, exists or free will um, can exist? Um, and, you know, I mean, on one hand, you also said you don't really want to talk about determinism, but the most straightforward account for why I don't think it exists uh, is that I, by and large, buy into a sort of mechanistic uh, account of the way the world works. Um, I do buy into a basically deterministic account, throw in indeterminism. Indeterminism may function on a subatomic level or even on a macro level. We might not be able to come up with a comprehensive explanation about why things happen. Um, but generally speaking, you know, I'm on board with a fairly, you know, domino toppling account for why people do things. Um, uh, I, 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 one more. I do think that we need to um, define when we use a word like responsible. I think we need to define what we mean there, because you know um, the connection between freedom and responsibility may not be entirely clear. So I'm, I'm just wondering if we want to define our terms a little bit more there. Mm. Um, can I can I add to the ice cream example for a moment? Because um, although uh, I think that we do have both intuitions. Um, on the one hand, I feel like I chose I I chose to go and eat an um, an ice lolly, um, a pistachio ice cream ice lolly, this morning. And on one level, I chose to go to the ice cream parlor. I chose to have pistachio ice cream, but on another level, I really didn't want to have ice cream. Um, because I'm trying to lose weight. And so what was it that made me nevertheless, made me, you see how I phrase it intuitively, mm-hmm. <laughs> made made me go to the ice cream parlor and buy an ice lolly and eat an ice lolly. Um, given that it's it's not, my intention is to lose weight and my intention is not to eat ice lollies. Um, so, so we do have this sense of, um, I think we frequently do have the sense of kind of lack of control. I mean, maybe I could have exercised, quote unquote, willpower and resisted going to get the ice lolly. But maybe the reason I didn't is that I'm not a person who, quote unquote, has enough willpower. And maybe having or not having willpower is not something we would we we can choose because otherwise 
everybody would choose to have willpower and not go and and not eat the ice lolly. Yeah. So I, I would say so. At least conventionally, uh, we make a distinction between uh, weakness of will and uh, and just not having a choice. And there, it's going to be a very fuzzy distinction. There are definitely going to be gray areas. Um, like I'm thinking about, uh, drug addiction is, is a, is a pretty standard one to think of as, uh, as kind of a gray area, uh, or like even like kleptomania. Uh, we might think that somebody who's stealing something cause they have kleptomania certainly at least has reduced responsibility for that. Uh, whether it's reduced all the way down to zero might be much harder to say. Uh, but normally at least, uh, you know, I think intuitively we do make a distinction between, Say you know we don't we don't normally I think classify all instances of weakness of will as uh, as ones in which people have reduced autonomy or, or or responsibility or certainly no autonomy or responsibility. So like if if I um, if you were supposed to meet a friend at the uh, at the uh, ice cream shop uh, and then um, and then you uh, you waited and waited and waited and your friend wasn't there. And finally you went back and you tracked your friend down at their apartment and you said, what was, what, how, you know, what was going on? Why did you do it? And they said, Oh, I'm sorry. I couldn't. And you say, Oh, why, why couldn't you? What happened? And they said, well, uh, I, I had the impulse to, uh, to sit home and play video games instead. Uh, I, I, I don't think we would normally think, Oh, okay, well, never mind. They couldn't have, right. They, uh, you know, we would, we would tend to think, you know, or and I don't think we would even think that like put it in the category of the kleptomaniac thief. I think we would think no, you you could have uh, exercised some some willpower there. Um, but I mean, there are very deep and, and muddy waters there. But I, I, I did just want to, if it's okay, I, I did just want to jump onto uh, John's description of the conflict of intuitions because I think that's actually a really useful way to frame it. Mm. Um, so, so John says that, uh, that we have, we have this very powerful intuition that you're choosing, uh, you know, when you're buying ice cream or whatever at the store. And we also have this, uh, intuitive, uh, intuitive impulse to, um, to make, um, you know, to tell cause and effect stories, uh, when we explain behavior after the fact, whether our own or someone else's, uh, but of course it's really important to note that those are only in conflict with each other given incompatibilism. That um, that given compatibilism, there's no conflict between between those two. And in fact, really, in order to generate a conflict, the third thing you need to add, you you don't just have to have an intuition that uh, we're making a choice and an intuition that uh, there's a cause and effect story, but you have to have an intuition that choice means no cause and effect story. That maybe it's a it's a spontaneous, unexplainable, uncaused, you know, our decision is the uncaused cause of our action uh, kind of thing. And at least I would say that I don't think that our ordinary intuition of choice is an intuition of uncaused, spontaneous decision. Uh, that, you know, I think that our ordinary intuition of choice is about is about being responsive to reasons, to thinking that, oh, I have a reason to do X and a reason to do Y, and I'm kind of weighing them against each other. And that when people say that choice is painful, that like when Sartre says that we're doomed to be free, we're doomed to have these choices, I think that's 
even though Sartre is somebody who believes in, uh, in, you know, in this sort of quasi libertarian account of, uh, of free will. I think that if we think about what the phenomenon Sartre is describing, uh, I don't think he's descri- I don't think it's the thing that's painful about it is that it's uncaused. I think the painfulness is about the conflicts between reasons to do one or the other. So I'm thinking just real briefly, I'm thinking of Sartre's classic example of his student he gives who, um, who is torn between taking care of his mother and joining the resistance against the Nazis in France. Uh, and he doesn't know what to do. And uh, Sartre says that no, you know, neither Kantianism nor any other ethical system could tell him what to do because it's such a hard choice. I think what makes that choice painful, what makes us doomed to make choices like that is that both the reasons for one course of action, the reason for the alternative course of action are so strong. So you're experiencing a painful grappling but that's a very different thing from saying that you're experiencing it as this spontaneous thing that comes from nowhere. I, I, I'm with you on that, and I'm also not quite with you on that. Um, so, first of all, great example with Sartre. Um, I'm glad glad you brought that up. And also, Iona I, I, and Ben, I, I think that it will be useful for us to stick, to sort of use the going to the ice cream store example is kind of a through line here. It's kind of ground. So we, we can kind of use the character of Iona going to the ice cream store. I just find in conversations like this, it's helpful to have kind of a simple, um, common intuitive uh, example like that. Good. But, um, uh, but, and so two, two quick things here. Uh, the, the first one, uh, Ben is that, um, from the practical or experiential standpoint, you know, take Sartre's student or take Iona in the ice cream store. And let's just say Iona has to make a really difficult choice as to whether or not to get the ice cream or not. So, you know, and say, you know, there were two lines of reasoning battling themselves out. And there were. So it's, <laughs> there were. <laughs> okay. So a, a somewhat comparable uh, ex- example. Um, I do think that, at least I think I think, that when we are in this kind of tug of war of having to make a choice, the experience that we're having, um, at least at at first blush, um, isn't that uh, um, lines of reasoning are just passively battling themselves out in our head. I do feel like that we, in some sense, have to negotiate between these two on a purely experiential level. So I'm just talking about experience. I do feel like we feel like we are the sort of adjudicators between certain, um, you know, presentations or lines of reasoning so that kind of the moral arbiter here is someone who is standing above the fray, so to speak. And we're looking down, you know, you might think of a judge and various attorneys standing up pleading their cases. And I think that we often regard ourselves when we are deliberating, when we are trying to make up our minds as judges that are standing over and above the kinds of reasons that are going on in us. So I I am challenging to some extent your characterization of our experience of judgment. Um, insofar as I do think that we do take ourselves to be uh, almost arbitrarily uh, or uh, um, 
judging from scratch, so to speak. Yes, reasons are uh, occurring to us, but when we're negotiating between these reasons, we're trying to bring something novel or something fresh to this deliberative process. Um, uh, and, And that's what I think is kind of painful about it. It's not as if we can just sort of sit back and allow this reasoning process to passively work itself out in us. We feel like we're interceding or meddling in the deliberative process. So I'm just I'm just drawing some attention to that detail of your characterization of deliberation. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you're a much more uh, advanced person than I am, but I, I have to say that when I'm uh, I'm making uh, a hard decision, I I very rarely feel uh, I, I don't think I. I don't think I feel like a judge who's above the fray, um, you know, kind of um, watching the people make the, you know, make the case. Uh, I kind of feel like I'm being, I'm being pulled in one direction and then the other, you know, that they have, uh, that there's this kind of tug of war going on over me, uh, you know, between do I get the ice cream or not? You know, uh, what about my diet? You know, whatever I'm trying to, uh, okay. In in my case, probably much more likely it has has something to do with grading and Twitter. Okay, uh, but okay, but Ben, if that's the case, if you're going to go with that description, then how are you going to account for what finally makes your mind up? Is it you? I mean, how would you describe it? Would you say one set of reasons made my mind up for me, or would you say I finally made up my mind? I mean, which which locution would you use? Well, I'd certainly use the second locution, but I, I might push back against reading too much into that. I, I think that um, I, I think that you know maybe there's a sort of process in which when I'm particularly torn about something, I sort of go back and forth between identifying between uh, reasons for different courses of action, and that one of them is just ultimately more you know more powerful to me. Um, but I'm not, I don't, I don't know that I'm, I'm as, I'm ever as, as distant from either of them, uh, as the judges from the, uh, from the attorneys making their cases. Well, I think that this, this, this distinction here is actually crucial. Um, and I think it's going to factor very uh, heavily into, uh, your accounts of compatibilism. So I'm sort of glad we've, we've landed here kind of kind of quickly. So, um, Iona, if you don't mind, let me just make one quick point and then, and then, I don't know, maybe throw the ball back to you and see if you want to take, take this in another direction or Ben, maybe you do. But, um, so I know that what is, what is kind of a crucial factor, and you've already mentioned this, Ben, in your account of compatibilism is reasons responsiveness, right? Yeah. So, and, you know, you mentioned, uh, John Fisher, uh, uh, and the, and his his cohort um, Raviza, I forget his first name. Mark, but, you know, uh, is it Mark? Mark? I, think, I think so. Right. So these guys, you know, have this very popular account of compatibilism, which suggests that even if our choices are, you know, even if a Laplacian demon or a supercomputer could predict our choice ahead of time, such that was absolutely determined that at a certain point in time. Iona is going to choose vanilla. Even if that was possible, what renders her choice free 
in a morally, uh, in, in a sense that entails moral responsibility, is just that her is what leads her to decide to get vanilla ice cream is a certain kind of reasoning process. Yeah, so it could, um, or at least a, a process in which she is capable of understanding and being at least somewhat moved by by reasons, right? You know, it, this isn't. Um, I mean, it's worth being careful about this because because we don't want to we don't want to make it sound uh, like somebody is only acting freely if they're like if they're not being irrational or something like that, right? There are views like that, like that kind of come out of the Kantian tradition, but I don't, I don't find that very plausible, right? We want to be able to say that um, that people could be like making incredibly irrational, short sighted decisions and still be acting freely, but there has to be at least some baseline degree to which you know, they're, they're capable as they try to figure out what to do of being at least somewhat moved by reasons for and against different courses of action. Yeah. And just to be really clear here, and then I'll shut up. Um, even if just to, to really zero in here, even if your entire reasoning process could also have been predicted. Yeah, of course. Every thought that runs through your mind, yeah. Even if all of that entire reasoning process was itself predictable and for all intents and purposes inevitable, your account still allows that that person is behaving freely in, a, in such a sense that he's should, can and should be held morally responsible. Uh, yeah, absolutely. My, my feeling is that uh, to the extent that we have this intuition that uh, we start thinking about pred- predictability, prediction, and that that starts to set off alarm bells. Uh, it's because we're confusing uh, prediction with with causation. That, in other words, um, you know, if there's some, um, if we imagine, you know, God or Doctor Manhattan from The Watchmen or whoever um, predicting. Bran exactly- in Game of Thrones. So this was a yes, thing yes, that people but- said in Game of Thrones is that. Since Bran knew exactly what was going to happen at the end, why didn't he prevent it? Um, as if knowing and prevention, or knowing and having the power to change things are the same. We right. know that's not the same thing. That's exactly. why, you know, Cassandra was put to death or whatever. Or at least no one listened to her. Right, right. But we, but, but I think we're very tempted sometimes when we when we do this thought experiment of imagining somebody predicting our actions to think that the predictor is somehow causing those actions to take place, which, on my view, would be a problem for free will. But I think that merely, um, like merely knowing what you're going to do in the future is no more of a problem for free will than uh, knowing what somebody did in the past is a, is a problem for the claim that they were acting past tense freely. I'd like to just get away from the ice cream example because it's too trivial. There's nothing at stake here. Um, I think we do need to get into the into the badlands of moral responsibility. Um, and I'd like to just go to the the example that is given. Um, one of the examples that um, Fisher gives, who is one of the who is the compatibilist that you were citing. And it's an example that I cite in my article in which Ben also takes up, which is imagine that there are some crazy, all-powerful scientists um, who have implanted a chip um, 
I think Fisher says some crazy Silicon Valley tech people who have implanted a chip into Ben's brain. And this, they can turn, they have a remote control switch. And at any time they want, they can control Ben's brain. So this is like some of the Cartesian demons that you also see in Star Trek who will go inside, who are kind of immaterial beings who will go inside other people's brains and control them from inside there. Um, So um, they have this switched on and Ben is walking around in, uh, in effect, well, not a zombie, but in effect, uh, I'm not sure what the word is for this, possessed. In, uh, the scientists are in control of his every action. And then he passes a pond, and there is a young girl in the pond drowning, and the scientists switch off the chip, leaving Ben the option to jump in and save the girl or not. And if he doesn't jump in and save her, they're going to switch the chip back on and force him to jump in and save her. And he decides to jump in and save her, they switch the chip on just to make sure he jumps in, he saves her. And he is morally praiseworthy for having saved the girl. Just just to interject, I think as you described the case, and unless I misunderstood, but I believe as you described the case, I think Fisher and everybody else would agree that he was not morally praiseworthy for it. Uh, so this is well, he this is a ver- he, de- he decided before they switched the chip back on, he decided that to to save the girl, um, oh, so I, he was going to save her either way, even without the chip. So we should—he's praiseworthy for having this impulse to save the girl. And the question is whether, even without these kind of crazy scientists, we really are in control of our impulses. Whether. Um, you know, there's nobody there in Silicon Valley who has a remote control controlling my brain. But does that mean that I am I am actually in control? Um, that when I come and I see the drowning girl, let's say the water is very deep, it's very stormy and very dangerous. Um, am I in control of whether I'm I'm too scared and don't go in? Or whether I leap in, um, that's that's another question. And there is an example of this. There was a heroic example in in India of this guy, um, Gagandeep Singh. Um, I'll link to this in the show notes. Who um, came upon an angry crowd who were lynching, as the Indians call it. They were um, beating this young Muslim guy um, and were going to kill him. And he went through the crowd. Uh, unarmed, and he was sort of speaking to them, and he picked up the boy, and he took him out of the out of the crowd. This was a very terrifying situation. It was a very heroic act. And when he was being interviewed, he was very uncomfortable, and I not just because he was being modest, but he kept saying that he didn't choose to do anything. He just, without even thinking about it, he just went in and did this thing. So yeah. is there is there a difference between that kind of what Gagandeep Singh is describing, that he just felt himself kind of, he felt an urge to go in there and save the boy. He went in there and saved the boy. And the person with the 
chip in their head. Um, and the mad scientist switching on the chip so that he would go in there and save the boy. Great question, Ben. Take, go okay. for it. So since since I don't want to sound like I'm evading the question, first of all, yes, I think there's a difference. But second, um, I I do want to be really careful about that original Fisher example because I think it's important to, to know what he's trying to show with that. Uh, he's not – you know that this Fisher example is not a is not supposed to be any sort of positive argument for the existence of free will that would convince Gagandeep Singh that he's wrong, you know, to have whatever sort of fatalist view he has about this. Uh, it's supposed to uh, it's supposed to be a response to a certain kind of argument for uh, against free will, uh, or particularly against compatibilist free will. So uh, the Fisher example is a version of what's called a Frankfurt case. Uh, and this is this is a huge part of the literature on free will in the last few decades are these Frankfurt cases and different versions of them and different responses to them. But basically the idea is this, that one of the traditional arguments for the incompatibility of free will and determinism uh, is goes something like this. Premise one, if everything is determined, no one is free to do otherwise, right? Nobody is capable of doing anything other than what they in, in fact did. Premise two, if no one is free to do otherwise, no one is free in the way that would matter for moral responsibility. No one is control in control of their actions in the way that would matter for moral responsibility. Therefore, conclusion, um, if everything's determined, nobody is in control in the right way to be responsible. Uh, and these Frankfurt cases, like the one Fisher is, is given, uh, are supposed to show that the second premise of that argument is false. Uh, and I know this is exactly the sort of thing you shouldn't do on a podcast, have like, you know, number of premises and stuff, but they have. But the idea is just that one of the assumptions of this traditional argument against the compatibility of free will and determinism is that um, we can only be in control of our actions the right way to be responsible for them. We can only be blameworthy or praiseworthy if we're free in the sense of being free to do otherwise, that I do A, but I could have done not A. Gagnon saying as uh, could, you know, went in and, and, you know, saved this Muslim boy, but he could have kept on walking. Um, and Frankfurt and then Fisher, who's, you know, that example you gave is Fisher sort of trying to give a more, a more like well-worked out detailed version of Frankfurt's case is trying to show that that's not true. He's trying to show that there's no necessary connection between moral responsibility and, and, and ability to do otherwise. Um, and so the idea is usually the way these cases go is something like uh, there's somebody who is, um, you know, there's, there's, there are three characters. There's like, uh, or there are two characters. There's the, there's, there's black and there's Jones. Black is your crazy Silicon Valley person or wicked neuroscientist or whatever. Um, and Jones is the person that Black wants to behave in some way. And the idea is that uh, Black is only going to intervene to force Jones to do what Black wants him to do if he has to. So if uh, if Jones go, do, uh, goes ahead and does what black wants him to do without black having to mess with his brain chemistry or turn on the chip in his head or whatever, then, uh, then black won't do those things. And so the idea is we would all agree that if black did mess with, um, 
mess with Jones's brain chemistry in some way to get him to make the decision he, that Black wanted him to make, then we would all agree, yeah, uh, Jones isn't morally responsible. Black might be morally responsible, but Jones isn't. We're at, but on the other hand, if Black never has to intervene, if Jones just want, does what Black wants him to do without Black having to turn on the chip, without Jones knowing there is a chip in his head, or more importantly, because it's not just a matter of what Jones knows, it's about what's objectively true, without Jones, without the chip ever being activated, without the chip playing any role whatsoever in the chain of cause and effect leading to Jones making the decision that he makes, then Frankfurt and Fisher think, under those circumstances, Jones is responsible and I know these examples can get very complicated, but actually my favorite ex- my favorite version of this uh, doesn't involve any kind of controller or um, or anything like that. It's it's just a super. Um, there's there's just um, uh, this one comes from Joshua Spencer. He has this short article called "What Time Travelers Cannot Do But Are Responsible For Anyway," where he imagines Martin, the time traveler. Uh, going back in time, he sees a, a, a high wire walker about to fall to his death, uh, and there's a button that Martin can push that activates a safety net that saves the high wire walker. And so Martin, he has no idea who this guy is, but he sees that this the high wire walker is falling, so he pushes the button and activates it, and that saves the uh, the high wire walker, who then turns out to be Martin's grandfather. Um, and so the idea is that if, if time traveling Martin hadn't pressed the button, uh, then it looks like he couldn't have not pressed the button because if he hadn't pressed the button, then his grandfather would have died before he became his grandfather. Therefore, Martin wouldn't have come into existence in the first place. So it looks like it's literally impossible for him to have done anything other than pressing the button, but we still think that he's, uh, praiseworthy, uh, for, for his actions. So, um, so that's that's just I know that's a little bit of a digression, but that's just what what this Frankfurt cases are trying to prove is that people can be in control of their actions in the right way to be praiseworthy or blameworthy, even if they even if they couldn't have done otherwise. But is that a, a sort of pragmatic um, and kind of commonsensical way? I mean, we have to have some criteria by which we decide whether people are praiseworthy or blameworthy. So we've taken these criteria and we've set certain boundaries, but aren't those boundaries a bit artificial? So for example, if we think that somebody, let's say you were now to go start raving loony and um, you rushed over to John's house and killed him. Um, yes. I'm sorry, that's not a very nice example, but um, I'm trying to take an unlikely example. The first case is you just are the person you currently are, and um, you just went over there and killed him, and it's completely inexplicable to anybody as to why. Right. Now let's imagine a second case where somebody had drugged you with some very powerful drug that um, causes uncontrollable rage. And that's why yes. you killed John. We would then hold you less responsible. But in the first case, the impulse to kill John must have come from some neurological, chemical impulse within your brain anyway. So I'm not sure that there is there appears to be to our moral intuitions, and I understand that we have to make practical distinctions. Is is there really a difference between your having been drugged 
by taking ingesting some internal substance and just having being kind of drugged by your own brain chemicals in a sense just having a surge of your own brain chemicals um so going back to your original examples uh Iona um uh you know you were you were zeroing in you were already zeroing in on this question back then you know so the question is um you know uh, to what extent um are so we there are two um sort of descriptions of, of, of what can cause a person to behave in a particular way that you were drawing attention to. One is one where there's an external stimuli, say uh, a neuroscientist uh, flipping a switch that makes you perform action X. Another one is, uh, or can be described as a person just naturally deciding uh, of their own volition to perform the same action, Right. And it, it, I think it's it's very common uh, and easy to see um, the situation in which someone just makes up their own mind without any so-called coercion um, as one in which the, the person is more uh, morally responsible. You know, if, if a gust of wind blows me across a room and I slam into Ben, um, you're not going to think, um, that I have attacked Ben. You're going to think that I just got slammed into him. Whereas if I suddenly decide to run over and throw my body into him, you're going to think, geez, John, why did you do that? You know, that clearly is something that I have to answer mm. for. So, uh, right. So, so um, we're looking at uh, the same kind of uh, behavior. On, on one hand, it seems freely chosen or uh, up to me in some relevant respect. And in another, we're seeing it being coerced in some sense, um, uh, in some, let's just say, more uh, more obvious sense. And I know that this is a distinction that, Ben, you brought up um, in our letter exchange where, you know, if someone is hypnotized, if someone has been drugged, if someone is, has been manipulated by a neuroscientist, um, then we're less inclined to attribute to that person moral responsibility because we're less inclined to characterize their action as free. And this is something that Fisher and Revisa, uh, um, you know, uh, bring a lot of attention to. And they, they claim that in those cases where someone has been manipulated, um, hypnotized, drugged, etc., that those people are not behaving freely and that they're not uh, can, should not be held morally responsible. So this gets back to this whole question of what specifically are the conditions under which um, people are free in this compatibilist framework? And, you know, um, what you've said, Ben, in, in our letter exchange with Fisher and Revisa say um, is that it has to do with a certain kind of sensitivity to reasons or some kind of reasoning process Specifically, what they say is that um, on one hand, we have to be reasonably reasons responsive, that is moved by reasons in a particular way. Secondly, and I think more interestingly, they claim that the, re the our, our reasons response mechanism, that is to say our disposition to respond to reasons in a particular way, has to be our own. And they spend a lot of time trying to sort of flesh out what it means to own our reasons response mechanism, right? So... They're going to say that if I've been hypnotized or if there's a mad scientist that's making me do X or making me think Y, um, then I won't own my response, reasons response, me uh, reasons response mechanism. 
So uh, I, I'm just I keep sort of pushing into the heart of the of your compatibilism argument here, Ben, and I I, I don't think I'm mischaracterizing. No, I don't, it. I, don't, I, think, I don't think you're mischaracterizing it, but I, this is I'm glad you brought this up because this is something I've always found a little confusing about your position. Because even before the letter exchange, when we've uh, discussed this on your Facebook group, Fair Game, um, I've um, you, you've you've made a lot of hay out of this point, and I've never quite understood whether there was supposed to be there, because, because this always this always strikes me as like one of the easiest, cleanest, and most straightforward distinctions in the view, uh, because I, I think that um, and. You know, because in cases where um, now, I mean, in the cases I only just gave, the reason I was hesitating about that is it actually sounded to me, at least as she was describing them, like in neither of the cases would we be intuitively inclined to ascribe moral responsibility. Because uh, in the first one, if I'm just sort of inexplicably filled with neurological with murderous rage. That sounds like some sort of neurological event has gone on that if we knew more about it, you know, the more we knew about it, the more we'd be inclined to think that I wasn't responsible. But like just in the just in the ordinary, um, the ones she started out with, right, that the um, uh, Fisher's guy going in the lake who, you know, um, there's some complicated series of decisions that uh, the controller is making about whether or not to turn on the chip in his head. And maybe let's say in this version of the example that the um, the chip is turned on um, versus the, uh, uh, the the real man in India uh, uh, saving uh, the Muslim uh, Muslim boy from the crowd, um, and I think that uh, I think that the distinction, right? So the uh, those in those cases, I think it's it's good because. In both in both of those cases, it does look like we're going to be motivated by by reasons in the right way, in a way that we wouldn't if we either ingested the murderous rage drug, or there was some sort of like neurological event that just caused all this murderous rage to come outpouring for for no good reason. Um, ben, can I can I can I interject with the event thing? Because yeah. there, um, so I can think of a multiplicity of different scenarios here and i want to know which of those you think are more blameworthy so okay so one you're somebody has given you a drug and that's what's caused you to kill john in this fit of murderous rage because the drug produces this inexplicable rage in which case the person responsible um i'm i I, i'm guessing you would think the person responsible is is the person who administered the drug yeah, that's right. If they okay. that on purpose, yes. And if you killed John in some completely in completely inexplicable, in a way that was completely inexplicable to everybody, we would assume it was a uh, you'd had a stroke or something, uh, some right. odd neurological event had happened. Um, what if you had just always been an extremely angry person, and that day you completely lost it? Are you then? responsible because maybe um, the reasons why you're an angry person um, could uh, are you in control of the kind of personality you have and and your temper and how that has developed and evolved and would you be more or less responsible if you'd felt no anger whatsoever but 
John had written you into his will or something, Agatha Christie style, and so you had gone over there and carefully murdered him and cleaned up the evidence. Well, without hearing more about the cases, I think probably more responsible in the third case. Uh, And it's not, to me, the distinction isn't about whether you're responsible for your personality or whatever. It it would be, uh, the distinction would be, about whether in the in the middle case, so like we started out with the case where somebody is being administered uh, a rage drug, uh, perhaps like whatever is being uh, experimented with at the beginning of twenty eight days later, uh, and then in the second case somebody like had a stroke. So I think the common sense answer would just be that no one is responsible there, um, and and I think that uh, the sort of compatibilism I, I'm identifying with would be consistent with that answer. The third case was the person who was just kind of, he'd always been an angry person. Um, and uh, and I, I'd say that I'd want to know more information about that. But if the, but, uh, but I, I do have, I think, a fairly clear um, standard about, uh, about what would be, um, about at least how to figure out whether he would be responsible in that case, which is about whether these sorts of fits of rage that he's prone to are interfering with uh, the function of his uh, reasons response mechanism. In other words, whether he's like, when he's overcome by, by rage in this way um, and let's, and let's assume that we can't trace back his, his tendency towards rage towards any, uh, any decision that he'd made in the past Um you know that uh, so he's um, he's overcome by by fits of rage, and if the fits of rage have the uh, tend to uh, over like tend to make it such that he's just not capable to any kind of remotely normal extent of understanding or being moved by reasons not to you know attack people or whatever. You know he's just too angry to think straight. Then I would be inclined to think that that would at least, at the very least, involve reduced moral responsibility. But the the, the sort of key thing for me would be um, would be the the process that leads to to his distinct his decision. The Whether process by which I mean, see this this to me is the key element. This is the territory that has to be explored. So. If if you're going to assess whether or not somebody is morally morally responsible for their for their behavior on the basis of the process, uh, and, and the process in particular, you, you seem to be coming back. And this is why I brought up this ownership criteria. That right. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Re- real, real quick, just so you can just so you can critique it. Uh, here's what I'd say about the ownership criteria. Uh, that it's like the ownership criteria for um, for natural um, for natural objects or for abandoned objects. That if uh, that what matters is um, what matters is whether you can um, the you can trace things back to another reason's responsive agent or not. Right? If you can't, um, uh, if you if there's no if there's no other reason's responsive agent in the background. Uh, in other words, if you're the only reasons responsive uh, being that has a claim on the reason, then that belongs to you, right? Whereas if... But Ben, name a, name a single instance where an individual is the only agent, uh, reasons responsive agent at any particular time. I mean, I, oh, see, this is where I think it, you it, and it, I... It, I mean, it, honestly, it, I'm glad you brought up that example. 
with the sets being used pretty much 100% of the time, uh, that, that would be all instances. So uh, the only instances... Would, what would be all instances? Uh, just, just, just any normal uh, reasons, uh, any normal case uh, of somebody being moved by a reason. Uh, the only things that would be cases where some other reasons responsive agent... Uh, would uh, would have ownership over those reasons, right? It, I think that you might be misunderstanding when I say uh, has a claim to okay. that doesn't that doesn't mean is influenced by you know that doesn't mean uh, is um, you know is in some way partially caused by, but you know the uh, but in uh, but that means is is owned by in the sense that, uh, that if you have, um, your, uh, you know, you're being moved by these reasons in this way at this time is a result of, um, is a result of some sort of extreme intervention, uh, by another reasons responsive, uh, reasons responsive mechanism that, you know, that you, that you've, you've been, that you've been hypnotized, you've been drugged, right, you've been right. manipulated. But this, I, just, just, I, Iona, I can kind of feel, feel you chomping at the bit back there. Yeah, let me, <laughs> go ahead. Let, let me just say that, that, Ben, this is, this is the crux of our disagreement on this topic. And this is the crux, I think, of the disagreement between incompatibilists and compatibilists fundamentally, because this is, I mean, what it's going to come down to is you say moved, so... If an agent is going to be the sole um, owner of a reasons response of his or her own reasons response mechanism, just insofar as I think w- the way you put it is uh, that person will be moved by reasons in such a way that an external agent is not the mover, is not causing that person to be moved. Yeah, is is not causing. I mean, we want to make a distinction between causing in the sense of uh, of influencing and causing in the sense of being the cause of. So we can make, now I'm sure that you can come up with all kinds of clever gray area cases here, but of course we know that it's a logical leap to go from the existence of uh, gray areas to the non-existence of a real distinction. Uh, and it's all, and of course you can also come up with similar gray area cases for just regular property ownership. Right. Right. So, right. Uh, and, and in fact, the two cases are going to be almost exactly parallel to each other. So, um, you know, if, you know, like the fact that you might have particles like on like the canvas of a painting that you're, uh, that you're drawing, the fact that you might have, have particles on this canvas, that um, you know that you're going to be have a, have at some point in the past have been uh, were part of things owned by other people um, doesn't mean that those owners uh, that the owner, that like if if there's a particle of of my canvas that was once uh, a particle of your skin or you know was once uh, you know once came out of um, you know, like you, you breathed out some air and that, that air then mixed with something that mixed with something that mixed with something that mixed in with the canvas. Uh, that doesn't mean that you have a legal claim on the painting. And I would say that in the normal case that sure, nobody is the sole cause of uh, their, you know, they're being moved by their reasons in the way that they are at the moment. But I think we can make a perfectly sensible distinction between 
uh, between being part of some incredibly large scale murky network of causes uh, and being the cause of the way that you're the cause if you're the hypnotist or the drugger or the brainwasher. So let me be really brief. Sorry uh, if I'm speaking out of turn. Um, I'm going to deny the distinction, just point blank. I'm going to deny it. Um, I think that um, in both the property case and the free will case or in only the free will case, I, I'm, I'm only prepared to talk about the free will case. Um, okay. Because I, I think if you're going to deny it in the free will case, you owe us an explanation of the disanalogy with the property case I, or else the denial just doesn't get off the ground. I'm going to need to know a little bit more about the property case, but let me just, let me throw an example your way and just see how you're going to make sense of it. All right. Yeah. Um, so think about, and I think you're familiar, and I'm sure you are, uh, Iona, too, uh, about the uh, the Westboro Baptist Church family. Mm-hmm. Know, yep. Right. So, you know, they have some pretty outrageous beliefs about homosexuality and stuff like this. And they have their kids standing out picketing military funerals because uh, the U.S. government, uh, as I understand it, they're, they're protesting the fact that um, our government same-sex marriage and stuff like that in this country. So these kids grow up uh, assimilating a whole bunch of very sort of outrageous views about human nature and about morality. Now, if you talk to one of these people, I've watched, there are some really interesting documentaries about them that Louis Theroux uh, has done. And and if you ask them, grown up, in their 20s, why did you stand out? Why are you standing out here with these picket signs? Why do you believe X, Y, and Z? Um, don't you realize, because they don't realize that you've basically been hypnotized by your parents to believe these things. They'll say, I haven't been hypnotized. We believe in free thought in this family. You know, they've showed me some evidence and I've thought everything through very, very carefully of my own volition. I'm not being a, I'm not a puppet and I haven't been hypnotized. I arrived at my own conclusions in my own way. So I guess my question to you would be, where do you draw the line between someone who is just through a natural process of enculturation, which in many families is tantamount to a kind of hypnotism, um, and, uh, and these people who say that, uh, well, no, not at all. I've, I've arrived at my own conclusions in my own way. Oh, I don't draw the line. I think that it's a, I think that there's going to be a fuzzy boundary and I think that that's just the epistemic deal. Um, I want to, I want to come back to the kind of idea of internal, completely internal motivations. So I'm going to return to the murder case. I'll cast myself as the murderer so you can be sort of released from that responsibility, Ben. Um, somehow I have, you know, John and I have become friends. We've become very close. He's written me as the kind of main beneficiary of his will. Mm-hmm. And I'm a bit short on cash at the moment. And I can think of an easy way to kill him that will not be traced back to me. Right. So nice, easy, painless way. Um, I'm going to administer some untraceable magic drug or something. So I go he- I go ahead and do that. Am I responsible? Well, obviously, in a legal sense, I'm completely responsible. And in a kind of ordinary moral sense, I'm responsible. But I would say the fact that, uh, why is it not reasonable for me to have done that? 
why do we all agree this was not the a reasonable way of this would not be a sort of normal way of reasoning right for the no. same reasons that we would assume that this is not is is not a, a normal way of reasoning i think we have to conclude that there is something deeply wrong with me and that may be it may be possible to put me in an mri scanner and to see that there is that my amygdala is malfunctioning which is something that people have seen very very frequently when they have scanned violent criminals including people who are not who who've been very cold-blooded about their crimes in this kind of sociopathic way that i'm describing there are the um there are very strong neural correlates between malfunction of the amygdala and the commission of violent crimes especially premeditated quote unquote cold-blooded crimes of this kind so maybe there's something wrong with my amygdala did i choose that no maybe there just is something deeply maybe i just am a sociopath did i choose to be a sociopath well no did i choose my personality no did i kind of choose my sense of ethics no so although it seems like this is a really clear case in which no one else can be blamed and no obvious external factor can be blamed and i obviously have to go to prison because if for no other reason to protect other people and also to place another reason in to place another reason into the balance for anybody else who is considering this kind of crime who has this sort of sociopathic completely selfish attitude that i have they should know that one con- possible consequence is going to going to prison for life so obviously i should go to prison um perhaps i should i mean maybe there's even a uh, an argument for the death penalty from the same kinds for the same kinds of reasons for dissuading others but am i did i really exercise free will and therefore can i really be said to be morally responsible i am doubtful yeah. um and i err on the side of no because i don't think there was any point at which i decided i had any free decision of i am going to be the kind of person who would do this thing so this is why even if it was completely in character i didn't choose that character um that's why i feel like there's no no matter how far back you go i can't see a point at which there was at which i had any freedom so i would so this is one of the reasons that i was hoping to start by talking about some of um i want to just can i just ask if john agrees with me on this uh iona i completely agree with you i mean i you know we we we're making the same you and i are coming at ben with kind of the same style of argument um and you know there's a guy named Dirk Paraboom who wrote something called a, a four case argument and he's basically making the same case where do we draw a line where do we draw the line between um uh an individual who has arrived at quote unquote his own decisions or her own decisions um in that case between uh, a case where someone is merely sort of um reasoning slash behaving on the basis of external factors whether they be brain trauma whether they be hypnosis whether they be culturation 
So we're both, Iona, both of us are sort of challenging Ben, I think, to draw some kind of interesting distinction between these two types of cases. I, I frankly don't see one. I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought up Fairboom's four cases because that gives me an excuse to spell out more fully what I meant earlier. Um, so Paraboom, um, he you know has you know he starts out with a case that like everybody would agree is not free will, where there's like a wicked neuroscientist manipulating somebody like in the moment, and then he then he gives a case uh, where the same manipulation happens. But uh, it's like way in advance. It's like a neurological time bomb, like the born identity, something like that. Uh, and then he gives a case where there's some sort of social brainwashing, possibly uh, like your Westboro Baptist Church example, though he's very vague about it. Uh, and then finally, he gives a case of just normal determinism. And basically, the strategy is, well, the first case seems a lot like the second case. The second, the jump between the second and the third case doesn't seem that great. The jump between the third and the fourth case doesn't seem that great. And uh, what I would say is what I said to him when he spoke at my university during grad school in the Q and A. And um, you know, I didn't, um, you know, I, I didn't think he had much response at the time, which was that he's committing the continuum fallacy. So the continuum fallacy comes out of the uh, Sorites paradox, which is about like how many stones you need to make a pile of stones or you can do it with like a head of hair that if you start out with a completely bald head and you add one hair and and one hair and one hair you imagine seeing a slideshow of a head that starts out with zero hairs and then you add a hair add a hair add a hair in every slide and given the way we use the word bald we wouldn't call somebody who had like four hairs in his head bald or five hairs or six hairs um but uh somewhere by the time you add enough hairs that he looks like Fabio, surely he's not bald. Uh, and the question is, where do you draw the line? And the answer is, realistically, you can't, right? That they have a, that like, if I said, oh, it's exactly 4,637 hairs, uh, that's the line. So if you have 4,637, you're still bald. But if you have 4,638, you're no longer bald. Clearly, I've just made an insane statement. Uh, because the concept is too fuzzy to pin it down that precisely, but that doesn't mean that there's no real distinction between bald or not bald, or that there aren't clear cases on both sides. And I'd say exactly the same thing about Paraboom's four cases and free will, that there's uh, that um, the first case is a very clear case of not free will. The fourth case is a very clear case of free will. Uh, the... Um, the third case is the one that seems like the vague borderline case that we're not quite sure what to say about. But I'd say the fact that we, we can't draw a precise line isn't very philosophically interesting because that just generally tends to be true of interesting and important uh, subjects. So if... Uh, but this, this, is, this is not the same, Ben, because... Why not? With the bold and the... With a with guy with a leonine mane and the bold guy... Um, mm-hmm. John and I would both agree that one of those guys is bald, but in this case, we don't agree that any of these people uh, sure, are bald. Right. Sure. Well, sure, but here's the analogy. Imagine if somebody was arguing to you that there was no such thing as baldness, that baldness is an illusion, and they gave you as an argument a series of 6,000 cases. Mm-hmm, that's what we are arguing. Well, right, but that's that's the point, though. Like that, that by analogy, if somebody did give you that argument, and then they said, hey – 
if you think that baldness really exists, then where does baldness start in this series? Surely Fabio is not bald, but subtract a hair. Is he bald? No. Well, subtract a hair, subtract a hair, subtract a hair. Tell me where you draw the line. And this would clearly not be a good argument for the claim that baldness doesn't exist. And I claim that by parity of reasoning, the paraboom argument isn't a good argument that free will doesn't exist. The same way that um, that bald means has sufficiently few hairs, where what exactly is sufficiently few uh, is going to be a little bit fuzzy, and that's just the nature of the beast. I would say that free will, you know, in the sense not a freedom to do otherwise, which may very well be incompatible with free will, but uh, with determinism, but in the sense of being in control of your actions, the right way to be responsible for them is about reasons responsiveness. Uh, and so when you get to questions about uh, whether, um, about exactly how responsive to reasons you have to be. So, you know, what about that case where, you know, where you're prone to these fits of rage, but it doesn't, it doesn't quite cross the line into mental illness territory, but we might still think that you're too angry to think straight. Or what about these cases where uh, we might think that, uh, that we're ambiguous as to whether someone else has a claim on your reasons uh, you know, on your you're being moved by these reasons that somebody else has a, has a claim on the reasons responsiveness process in a way that's ambiguous between the hypnotist who clearly has such a claim and the case where sure you might be moved to one you know you might be influenced to one extent or another by lots of different people but no one seems to have a particular claim. Uh, I would say that uh, that it, it could do, it could be that we just don't um, you know that like there. That, yeah, that exactly where the line is is a little bit fuzzy, but that doesn't make the distinction between sufficiently reasons responsive and insufficiently reasons responsive itself unclear. That doesn't mean there aren't clear cases on both sides. But Ben, this is uh, um, this analogy doesn't work for me because John and I are both looking at a bald head, and you are saying there's a hair there somewhere. It seems, it seems to me that we're all looking. Um, that we're all looking at the at the bald head, uh, and um, and I'm saying it's bald, and you and you guys are saying, well, if that's bald, then where in the process of hair removal do you become bald? And and I'm I'm saying, sure, I don't have an answer, but it's not a reasonable expectation that there is such an answer. And we, and we know that in general, it's a logical fallacy to jump from the lack of a clear, sharp cutoff point to the lack of a real distinction or clear cases on both ends. Um, but I don't think there is any distinction. No, That's the no, thing. I, I, I mean, I'm, um, your conclusion is no clear distinction. Right. My point is that this isn't a good argument for that conclusion. Well, that's not my argument, though. My argument is that uh, even if the person is completely reasons mm -hmm. responsive, okay, it's John's argument, it's Derek Parabon's um, argument. But keep going. Right. So I'm I'm completely reasons responsive in my decision to kill John. It's a totally logical decision that I have taken, reasoning it out carefully. No one has drugged me. I don't have any, I don't have an obvious brain tumor or neurological condition. No one has influenced me. I just uh, want his money. So I decide to kill him. And it is entirely because I'm a bad person. My question is, did I choose to be a bad person? And that's where I will have to say no. So I feel that 
obviously, legally, I'm responsible. And in a kind of ordinary sense of the word, I'm responsible. But I don't think I'm fundamentally responsible. Okay, well, that fundamentally is interesting. Uh, because because uh, I think that it's I think that's a revealing slip that you know that we've sort of gone from don't have free will to don't fundamentally have free will, which I think might be an unconscious admission that we're loading more in here than it really belongs to our ordinary conception of free will. Uh, but I think that this is why I was starting to say uh, earlier on I wanted to start out by talking about some of the main arguments against. Uh, the compatibility of free will determinism, because I think what you're doing here is you're is you're relying on one of those main arguments, which is the uh, causal argument, which says that, uh, well, in order for uh, for me to be free and responsible, um, the chain of causation uh, leading to to my action has to start with me, right? You know that if if that if we can trace the causes back, so I do. Um, like there's a nice Galen Strawson article that was in uh, the New York Times. Uh, the basic, or basic yeah, argument. Yeah, where he, you know, uh, he refers to this as basic argument where he's, he talks about somebody who's walking past an Oxfam box and they have, um, and, uh, and they feel like they could have, you know, like, let's say they, they, they keep going past it, but they feel like they could have stopped and put money in. But he says, this is an illusion because, um, you take, we do what we do because of the way that we are. Any complete explanation of why I do what I do has to do with my mental states. Those mental states are caused by some other things. Those other things are caused by some other things, uh, et cetera. And eventually it goes back to stuff that we clearly don't have any control over. Therefore, we don't have free will. And what I would just point out there is that there is an important premise that's doing a lot of work there that's not just some ordinary intuitive premise. It's It's a... It's a speculative philosophical premise that's not like I think that most people don't have intuitions on one way or the other because they've never thought about it, which is, uh, which is the premise that I can only be in control of my actions if I'm in control of everything that, you know, of, of, of everything that, I, that my actions can be causally traced back to, which I think is false in much the same way. This is an analogy I was, I was pushing in my letter exchange with John as I think that it's false to um, to say that I can only know something if I, you know, if I know uh, every, you know, that I can only know that X is true if X follows from Y and I can give you a complete explanation of why Y is true or, you know, if Y follows from Z, I have to be able to, you know, in other words, if we can trace my knowledge, if we can trace my belief in X back to something that I couldn't give you a complete, uh, a complete explanation of how we know it's true that therefore I don't know X, um, which is kind of a Cartesian skeptical argument. But I think most people I'm guessing, including John uh, don't accept that. And I think they're right not to accept that. And I think that, I think that the cases are at least roughly parallel, that there's something that maybe sounds somewhat plausible about it at first, at first glance that, um, that you have, uh, that, oh, I can only know, I can only know X if, you know, somebody asks me, how do you know that? And then they ask me, how do you know that? And then they ask me, how do you know that? And how do you know that? That, you know, that it would trace back to, you know, that at every step we could trace it back to, I could give a full explanation of how I know it. Uh, and so, you know, and I think that that kind of foundationalist maybe assumption about epistemology, about knowledge, 
Uh, I think that what's I think that it sounds somewhat plausible, but then when we weigh that against the consequence, that that would mean that uh, almost nobody knows almost anything, right? Maybe we know some basic logical principles, and that's about it. Then we say, okay, is that which is more counterintuitive that that this that this analysis of knowledge is wrong? or that nobody actually knows anything. And similarly... I think I, nobody knows anything. Um, I mean, that's my, my, my intuition. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't really see the connection here, but also... Can I jump in for a second? I, I, I'd sort of like to... Uh, I'm a little wary of getting too far... I mean, I, I, I appreciate the Cartesian knowledge uh, analog and the Sorties argument, I think that those are both really interesting. Um, I, I, I'd just like to come in to just try to get a, a little bit sharper sense of this control question um, that Fisher and Revisa bring up and that I know that you're on board with, Ben. So I'm just a little curious. When you – so so in order for a person to be morally responsible uh, slash free when performing a particular action on your yeah. account – it sounds like what you're saying is that a person needs to be able to exercise X amount of control over their reasoning process. Well, is their reasoning correct? process has to exercise X amount of control over their decision making is the way I put that. Okay. Oh, okay. So assuming that an individual has a reasons response mechanism that is functioning, let's just use the expression, um, uh, well, let's just say in a particular way, um, then that person is behaving as freely as a person can yeah. possibly. And, and maybe, uh, and maybe that's true right? in the amygdala case, and maybe it's not. It depends on whether the thing that's wrong with the amygdala is maybe causing that person to not be moved by moral reasons in the way that they would be otherwise. We need to know a lot more details about that case, but keep going. Okay, and you would distinguish between a case where a person is exercising, uh, okay, hold on a minute. So um, the reasons response mechanism has to work in a particular way for a person to be responsible. Um, when the reasons response mechanism is, be, is operating in this particular way, would you say that um, uh, whether or not it is operating in this particular way depends upon the extent to which the reasoner uh, can exercise control over uh, the uh, reasons response. No, I think that what it means for the reasoner to be response to be in control of their actions is that their responsiveness to reasons is in control uh, is uh, is in control in the right way over their decision making. Is in control in the right way. So, so, over so their in other words, that like uh, that. So the difference between this account and like a really simple form of compatibilism, like uh, like David Hume, right? So Hume says that uh, that as long as your um, as your your passions and whatever are um, are in control of your actions in the right way, that that's just what free will is, right? You know that they have that uh, that your uh, that your desires are calling the shots uh, in a certain way, uh, and um, and I think that whereas this sort of account would say no. Uh, what it you know what it is is that the the process leading to decisions has to um, what it what it means to say that the reasoner is in control of, of their decision isn't some big you know 
tricky, complicated metaphysical thing about the meaning of the self or anything like that. What it means for the reasoner to be in control of the decisions uh, is that mm. uh, their sensitivity to reasons uh, is playing the right sort of role in generating those decisions. Right. But, but what, what I'm going to say there is that I don't see how you can escape this, the metaphysics here because you're going you're gonna to disqualify all these manipulation cases um, as legitimate um, uh, uh, scenarios in which a person is actually the reasons response mechanism is functioning properly. So you're going to reject the idea that, uh, that their mechanism is functioning properly if they're drugged, if they're hypnotized, if they have a brain tumor. You're going to reject all those possibilities. Um, and if you're going to reject them, then I think yeah, for, 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 for different reasons in different cases, but yes. But, and I think that if you're going to reject those possibilities, you're going to have to uh, invoke some kind of principal distinction between what's going on in those cases. And it's going to have to be some kind of metaphysical distinction about, yes, the structure of the self. Yes, what it means to control thinking, what thinking is, all these different things. I don't see how, how you can escape. No, I, I don't. I, I, I think we have the resources to explain all of those cases without getting into any of that. I think that the, in the case of the brain tumor, for example, the point is that uh, sensitivity to reasons uh, is, uh, is is being is being interfered with. That they have that the person is insufficiently responsive okay. to reasons. In, in, in the case of the uh, hypnosis or whatever, or the most you know the most like like ordinary, easy to understand manipulation cases, it's probably going to be more the first thing anyway that they. Uh, that you're not going to the person who's like the sort of been hypnotized and they're walking around like a zombie probably isn't responsive enough for reasons to be an interesting enough case anyway, but they're either really interesting manipulation cases where they, the wicked neuroscientist has like made some very delicate intervention right. such they're still going through a reasoning process, but like he's guaranteed that it's going to come out the way he wants it to come out or something uh, okay. like that. Yeah. Uh, then in those cases, the problem uh, is that there is another reasons responsive being who is uh, who is exercise you know who is not just a influence or anything like that, but is exercising this such an overwhelming um, level of control over there as to have a claim on the reason you're responsible. Then how are you going to make the case? Where are you going to draw the line with the Westboro Baptist uh, family? The idea that you have to draw a line for the account to work commits the continuum fallacy. It's a logical leap. See, this is I, – I, I, I kind of don't know where to, how to grapple with this, to be honest. I, I think that you're smuggling in a little bit. I think that you're – I'm not smuggling in anything. This is just, this is just basic agreed-on logic that they have – that you have uh, that like – it's it's not like the continuum fallacy is something compatibilist made up, you know, that this is that like this is a really important like if you don't recognize this is a logical fallacy, you're gonna end up being falling for all kinds of crazy things about all kinds of subjects. That like the person, the baldness skeptic is gonna convince you that there's no such thing as baldness. Uh, you know, like uh, the the pile skeptic is gonna convince you that there's no such but, thing but as a pile. You don't think that that you need to satisfy some kind of I mean, even Fisher and Revisa concede that they don't have any knockdown case for this. So, uh, case for what? Uh, that they don't have any knockdown case for distinguishing between um, what they call between manipulation cases and cases which are not manipulation cases. They 
they they say we have no knockdown case. We have no conclusive way to distinguish between these two cases. And they appeal to intuition, which sounds to me like what you're basically doing. You're saying that, look, fundamentally, we all agree that there's something called moral responsibility. Um, and it's just basically clear that in certain cases people are. And then I say, well, why is it clear? And then you say, well, I don't really need to offer any kind of. No, 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 no. I, I could give you a clear, that's not right. They have a, you know, I can say, I can explain the difference. So there are two different things that we need to sharply just differentiate here. And I know that's kind of funny to say sharply after this, but uh, one of them uh, is, can you give a clear account of the distinctions between, uh, say, Fabio on the one end and the guy with zero hairs on his head on the other head? a clear explanation of why Fabio is not bald and the second guy is bald. That's one thing. The second issue is, can you tell me exactly where the line is drawn in the ambiguous cases? Now, the idea that the second thing would be a requirement, that commits a continuum fallacy. But of course, you have to do the first thing, but you can do the first thing in, in this case, that uh, that you know that we can say that... Um, that the guy who didn't meet Iona at the uh, at the ice cream store because he felt like staying home and playing video games, uh, that 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 guy is the Fabio of responsibility. That he has a that uh, that uh, that he's a very clear case of his uh, his uh, his decision making involved. You know the the right kind of ability to recognize reasons and all that stuff. He's not in any kind of gray area. There's not some other being whose reasons responsible who's exercising an overwhelming level of control over him. Uh, so such as that they have a claim to his, his reasons that they're not really his reasons they're this other guy's reasons. So those seem like pretty clear distinctions, even if you can't draw a line in the ambiguous I, cases. I still think Fabio has a toupee on though. I still don't accept that Fabio's hair is real. Well, I, I, I understand that. Right. So I'm not saying that, because of this, you have to believe in free will. I'm just saying that what this shows is that the where do you draw the line argument is a bad argument against free will. Uh, I see. That, that wouldn't be my argument, though, because I feel no, that... Not your argument, yeah. but, but it is John's argument. Is it? Uh, yes, yes, it is. He, he's, he, I mean, that's his, his, he's used the phrase, where do you draw the line, at least a dozen times. He brought up Parabum's four cases. He, uh, he repeatedly pressed the Westboro Baptist Church as a, you know, ambiguous case about, um, you know, about level of outside, you know, the, whether the level of outside influence rises to the level that somebody else would have a claim on your reasons. Yeah. So my, my argument is that, and, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm, sticking, I'm sticking to it, and I'm going with, you know, Bittrin or Bittrin, they, you know, they make the concession too. I mean, it is their argument, but I'm, I'm quoting them right here. Uh, they, they, they cannot come up to come up with a principal decision. I'm looking for the exact quote. Sorry. Um, okay. Well, the, what they should have done is gone into a time machine and read Ryan Lake's uh, doctoral dissertation, "No Fate But What We Make," uh, and uh, what he says about the principal distinction is exactly what I said. Uh, with the uh, the property analogy that you know that you have uh, that if you're being moved by reasons such that uh, you don't have another reasons responsive being who's who's in a position uh, to exercise such an overwhelming level of um, of causal influence that they would um, that they have um, they have a claim on it on their own 
that that's the distinction that they have. So, you know, are you, uh, it's your own reasons if you're being moved by them in the right way and there isn't another being who has a legitimate claim on it and there's another being who has a legitimate claim on it if they're exercising this overwhelming level of control. Now, if the question is just where do we draw the line about what counts as overwhelming enough, again, you don't want to argue that way or else you end up talking yourself into the non-existence of what, what I What I'm saying is that I think you need to have a clear, positive way to distinguish. Um, so, your, so your argument is that a person is sufficiently, let's say, free or autonomous insofar as there is no agent external to that particular person that has unduly influenced the reasoning process, right? That's, that's your argument. Um, yeah, well, unduly would be the sort of thing that's involved in the neuroscientist intervention. And would it be involved yeah. in the Westboro Baptist family? Again, it's a gray area. The fact that, uh, the fact that gray areas exist as they do all throughout life in every interest and subject uh, is not a good reason to deny the existence of a distinction or of clear cases on each side of a distinction. Uh, all right. Um, Could, by, by, by the way, can I go back to something Iona said uh, when she was giving her sure. amygdala case? Because because uh, I, I think this is really uh, an important point, and um, and I, I'd be very I'd, I'd be really kicking myself and, and telling myself I should have done otherwise if I didn't bring this up uh, at some point. Uh, which is that when you were describing this case, you were saying, okay, maybe the person who, um, you know, or you, I think in the example, you were murdering, uh, uh, murdering John to get the money in his will, and uh, which is possibly because of whatever went wrong uh, with your amygdala, um, that, uh, that there would be a case certainly for uh, imprisoning you, maybe even executing you uh, for these sort of standard utilitarian reasons uh, that, uh, you know, to, to you know, so to influence the reasoning of other people who might be who might be you know morally flawed in the same way, etc. Because uh, this is, I think, a really important point uh, because I I see two and different- to protect other people from me, right? Yeah. As a deterrent and a protection to society, right? Like uh, like Derek Paraboom, the guy with the four cases, likes to make the analogy between. Um, uh, between punishing, you know, like locking up violent criminals and uh, quarantining plague victims, for example, uh, and and I think that's coherent, right? I think that there is a internally consistent way that makes sense of of justifying punishment without bringing free will into it, if you're willing to just be a pure utilitarian about punishment. But one thing I, I do want to point out is that people on you and John's side of the argument. I find, and I, I'm not necessarily accusing any individual of inconsistency because I don't know if it's necessarily the same people employing the same, the, these two different moves, but I find that there are two very different moves that are often employed when it gets to this, this point about criminal punishment, and I think it's worth really highlighting them because this, I think it's a really important difference. One move that they'll sometimes make is what John seemed to me to make in our letter exchange, uh, which, and, you know, Paraboom kind of talks this way sometimes, which is to say, hey, not only can we still make sense of our common sense idea that like uh, the criminals should be punished without free will, but this is actually better because because uh, we have this more sort of humane, more enlightened way of thinking about punishment because we like the phrase I think John used in our letter exchange is that we take the retributive wrath out of it, right? That they have somebody might be punished for all sorts of pragmatic utilitarian reasons, but 
but you know, but they're not a they're not a fit subject of my retributive wrath. You know that they uh, and uh, or uh, Jerry Coyne is a scientist who writes about this stuff sometimes. He's written some articles about the subject for Quillette, and he takes a very similar line and he says that you know belief in moral responsibility is associated with this very like primitive regressive view about punishment that you know you're punishing people because they just deserve to be punished. Um, and so that's one possible response. A different possible response is, well, even if free will and moral responsibility don't exist, we kind of need to pretend as if they do in order to sort of go through life. Uh, and, and so we, we're, we'll, we'll, reason about, uh, we'll reason about criminal punishment as if free will and moral responsibility existed. And I, I just want to highlight how different those are and where exactly they come apart. So where they come apart, to my mind, is that um, there are at least three different views you can take about criminal punishment and what justifies it. One is a pure retributivist view that uh, people should be punished just because they have it coming. So like this is the kind of thing when people say, like people are complain about how, you know, how like um, who have certain kinds of like really regressive views about criminal punishment. They'll complain about how prisoners have it too easy. It's supposed to be a punishment. Uh, that, you know, that they, they don't care if, you know, no matter, they don't care how bad the conditions are, you know, they're being punished, right? Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there's a pure utilitarian view of punishment that says that, um, that the justification for punishment is purely about um, uh, rehabilitation, deterrence, you know, prevention, you know, all these things that are fundamentally get down to keeping other people safe. Uh, and, in, and it's true enough that the second, the first one assumes moral responsibility and the second one doesn't. But there's also a third view of criminal punishment, which I actually think is the most humane and enlightened of the three, which also assumes moral responsibility, which is the uh, rights forfeiture view, which says that we all start out with a right not to be imprisoned, for example, uh, and we can forfeit that right uh, by virtue of... Um, of, of, you know, of making certain kinds of bad actions, you know, doing things that were morally responsible uh, for, uh, for doing that are bad, but that the mere fact that we forfeited that right uh, doesn't, doesn't add up to a reason to punish us, that we still need some sort of utilitarian reason to be in the mix. And, and to see how this can come apart from the pure utilitarian view, uh, it's, I think if you think about cases where, um, Let's say I think this is the one I used in my response to you at, at uh, Ario that the uh, that there's some town that's on the verge of like an ethnic riot between two groups uh, because a member of one group has been killed and everybody's pretty sure a member of the other group did it and they're pretty sure that if they don't like nab somebody and, and, and prosecute them there's going to be a riot in the town and many more people's lives are going to be ruined or destroyed than if they just frame up one innocent person. And if you have this purely utilitarian view, it's very hard to explain why you don't do that. Or like the point I was making in the most recent ARIO article about thinking about like the post 9-11 war on terror and, and all the terrible things that have been done uh, by uh, in the name of counterterrorism uh, that all seem to be justified by this kind of utilitarian calculus, right? We're going to, okay, you're harming some people by, for example, locking them up in Guantanamo Bay, but you're saving other people's lives. And so, you know, it's not that the, um, so if you're just thinking it, that, okay, we're just not going to worry about what people deserve. We're just going to worry about 
uh, what's going to help more people than it's going to hurt. You know, that if we lock up this person, you know, if they a problem, that'll, um, you know, that'll help, uh, that'll, you know, maybe ruin the rest of their life. Uh, but, uh, but you're going to, but, you know, but you're going to be saving other people's lives potentially. Um, well, and so I think that if you have that middle view, that rights forfeiture view, you can explain what's wrong with that. You can explain that sort of powerful intuition that's baked into Western justice systems that it's really wrong to uh, punish innocent people. In fact, it's so wrong to punish innocent people that we go with that Blackstone formulation that it's better for, uh, for 10 guilty men to go free than for one innocent person uh, to be locked up. And I can make sense of that on this rights forfeiture view where there's a where moral responsibility is playing a role in distinguishing between the innocent and the non-innocent. Uh, but I can't really make sense of that on a purely utilitarian view. It's it's not um, and it's like when we're quarantining plague victims, because we precisely because we don't think that the quarantining has anything to do with moral responsibility or that they deserve to be locked up, no sane like uh, health authority would say. Uh, it's better for ten uh, people without for ten plague victims to go around mixing with the general populace than for one Paul false positive to be quarantined for a little while. Uh, can I just outline the classic statement of this, which I think many people are familiar with, which is Ursula Le Guin's short story. It's called "Those Who Walk Away from Omelas," or maybe "They Who Walk Away from Omelas," and. I think the, the ones, ones who walk, who away, walk from away from Omelas. And um, in that story, uh, Omelas is this huge city and it is um, an absolutely idyllic and utopian place in every way. It's prosperous, it's beautiful, it has pristine nature, all of the citizens are healthy and happy and um have wonderful relationships and they create art and science and scholarship. It is the perfect city, but the entire, their entire prosperity and happiness is dependent on a single child being kept in a dungeon and tortured for life. And, um, Sometimes when people find out that that is what Omelas is dependent upon, some of them leave. That That's pretty much the entirety of the story. It's a little parable, um, the ones who walk away from Omelas. So that is what you're describing there when you're talking about the limits of utilitarianism. And I think you're right that whether or not we take an utilitarian approach has to depend upon the severity of the punishment that we are meeting out to the guilty person. So, for example, I agree with Sam Harris, and I think you disagree, and I get into many fights about this. I agree with Sam Harris that um, profiling at airports is justified, for example. So I'm okay with a lot of people being unfairly frisked or taken aside or asked a few questions or have having their suitcases even opened or whatever it might be, um, being given a little extra attention because they fall within the demographic most likely to commit terrorist acts. 
which I think Harris describes as um, he just. Dis- um, I would agree with him that this demographic is men between the ages of roughly twenty and forty-five. Harris says up to Harris is, is I think Harris is two years older than me, and he says up to his age of fifty-two, which I think is probably a little on their high side. Um, so it's the demographic is men traveling alone within a certain age range. And Harris says, who looks like they might conceivably be Middle Eastern, or does he say Muslim, which makes less sense to me because anybody could be. uh, Even if you think Muslims are overwhelmingly the most likely group to commit terrorist acts, I think statistically that's still true. Um, But anybody could be Muslim. So I don't find that very convincing. Some people are much more likely to be Muslim than others. Right, right. So a guy, an, uh, um, a, an Orthodox Jewish guy with ringlets and wearing tefillin and whatnot is probably very unlikely to be Muslim and so is a, um, so is a Jain monk. But uh, so let's say just men within a certain demographic. He does. He does kind of play around about whether dark skin should be one of these characteristics, and it kind of seems what explanation should be. He's. He does say that he should definitely be in that group, though. He's very clear about that, and his. Sure. He he's does. not dark skinned I, I just you know. Um, because he could. I, I just. Yeah. I just want to note that you know that he is. Um. Yeah. I'll take. I can take the stronger version of this argument. Let's imagine that 95% of terrorists on planes are black, um, are young black men between the ages of 30 and 40. Um, I'm, pro- I'm, I'm okay with young black men between the ages of 30 and 40 then being subjected to more stringent controls at the airport, even though the vast majority, it's a very, very tiny proportion of that demographic who are in any way dangerous. Um, it's, you know, a vanishingly small percentage who will, um, commit acts of terror. But given, um, given constraints on time and resources, and I also, uh, assuming that frisking is is kind of helpful at all, which I'm not really sure it is, but I'm just going to assume it is for the sake of argument, then I'm okay with the injustice, because it is an injustice, obviously, of them being prejudiced against in having to, say, spend 10 extra minutes going through security um, than other people. So um, in the same way as I would also accept that your plague victim case, that I'm okay with 10 completely healthy people being in quarantine um, so that we can catch the one person who has the plague. Yeah, but I'm not okay with executing or imprisoning somebody who is completely innocent in order to commit, uh, to prevent a race riot. So it depends for me on the severity of the punishment that you are if you're making a utilitarian calculation, then you have to weigh up the severity of the punishment to the innocent or very likely to be innocent person with the benefits. And so, yeah, go ahead. Uh, for those who are going to be listening to this podcast, I'm 
I, I think it might be useful just to kind of reframe this discussion at this point and tie it directly into the whole free will question. So is what's being discussed right now a kind of justification for retributive, uh, uh, re- retributive justice, or, or are you guys discussing um, – so a retributive uh, – an approach to retributive justice would assume that um, it's good to punish um, wrongdoers whether or not they're ultimately morally responsible. So th- that's what we're talking well, about. Right? I, mean, I mean, retributive justice, as I understand it, assumes moral responsibility. That I've, I've never heard anybody say that it's good for non-utilitarian reasons to punish people who aren't morally responsible for their actions. Uh, so pure retributivism says that the mere fact that somebody has committed a bad act for which they're morally responsible is itself a reason to punish them. It adds up to such a reason. Pure utilitarianism says about punishment says that um, that the mere fact that somebody is um, that punishing somebody will lead to sufficiently good results uh, is adds up to a sufficient case for punishing them. Uh, but there's this third view, which I think is the only I would argue is the only one of the three that can adequately capture uh, a lot of intuitions about. Um, about how legal systems would work that I, I think we probably all three share, uh, says that no, uh, people, innocent people have a categorical right not to be punished, uh, but uh, they, can, they can waive that right by committing certain sorts of bad acts for which they're responsible. Uh, if, um, and if, uh, if that's the case, then in combination you know, that still doesn't give you a reason to punish somebody when it's not going to do any good to punish them. But in combination with like good reasons about public safety, for example, to punish people, that would give you a good reason to punish them. Uh, and, and I, I, I kind of get, um, and so like, I was, I was trying to push that line by like sort of thinking about like why we wouldn't use the Blackstone criteria, uh, about, uh, about quarantines, which is Paraboom's analogy, right? This, this isn't something I made up. This is something that, um, the other side, the people who think that like the loss of free will is no great loss when it comes to thinking about punishment use. Um, and, and I take Iona's point right in response, which, which is that, okay, well maybe we could explain why we could explain the distinction between paraboom, between quarantine and, uh, and like imprisonment or execution without bringing free will into it because we might just think um, that like there are certain kinds of injustices that we'd be willing to excuse on utilitarian grounds, whereas once the injustice gets severe enough, we wouldn't do that. Uh, and and that's, that's fair enough, right? I mean, that's, that's surely right. That like if, if you have like, you know, even I would say that like if, if somebody's – if um, uh, I mean, even though I, I, I do totally disagree with, with Harris about uh, profiling and I'm, I'm really tempted to argue about that, but that's, that's, that's probably too far, uh, too far off topic. But like, but look, I mean, even I would say that like, if like, if you have like the apocalypse machine that's going to blow up the universe and like the only way to stop you from doing it involved unjustly imprisoning one person, then okay, maybe we can do it, right? You know, that's uh, like you know, you could get to the level of where the utilitarian consequences were so bad it just totally obliterates the competing uh, competing considerations. Uh, but um, but I, but what I find it 
and I and I guess that's fair, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like that is a good distinction between the quarantine case and the race riot case. But what I would still push is that I find the use of the word injustice in there really interesting, right? So, like, why is it, you know, like why is it that it's unjust to uh, to to punish the person who uh, who hasn't done anything wrong? And it seems like if you believe in moral responsibility, then we have a kind of available explanation of why it's unjust, you know, which is that, um, which is that they, they, they don't, um, they haven't done anything to deserve, you know, having their, their non-imprisonment rights taken away. Um, but if you, you know, that they're, that they're innocent, that they're morally innocent, that seems like an important distinction. Whereas if you don't believe in moral responsibility, I'm not sure why it's unjust because if you're just saying, if the whole reason to punish the violent criminal is that um, is that when we weigh their next twenty years in prison against all the lives we could save by imprisoning them, and and if your whole justification is a utilitarian justification, that is the way you you're justifying punishing the violent criminal, then I'm a lot less clear on why we don't make the same calculation in the race riot case. Well, at some point. Um before we wrap this up, and I, I hate to be so persistent on this point, but it, it is a to me. Yeah. Um, I, I, I would be curious to hear, I know maybe you're going to go back to the sorties argument, but I would just be curious if, you know, you were in a jury and one of these yes. Westboro Baptist people was, you know, uh, accused of some kind of, Hate crime. Hate crime. How right. you would distinguish between whether or not this person, uh, whether their actions had been motivated by an external agent or not? Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I, yeah. I'd just like to know how you would even make that determination. I, I could imagine being very, very torn about it and just having no idea what to think. But, 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 uh, but no idea. I mean, how would you even begin to just dis- see? This is where it's, this is. This is what's interesting to me about this topic. Is how do you yeah. begin to distinguish between these cases? On what basis? Oh uh, well, it's on the basis of well, okay, one degree of reasons, responsiveness, and two, a uh, degree of um, the degree to which uh, there's the there's the external agent, you know, agent who's uh, who's exercising the undue level of control. Uh, there, so those are those are the the basis on which you which you distinguish it. But the but in this particular case, I think that well, probably the second one is the one that's going to be gray area. This, um, well, the second one is what's interesting to me. Yeah. Okay. So um, so yeah, and I, I think that it's I think that it wouldn't. Be, <laughs> I suspect that it wouldn't be interesting uh, if it didn't come with uh, didn't come with gray areas. I think that like as um, I think that certainly as a juror without some like superhuman ability to like kind of replay their thoughts and, you know, and, and over the years, you know, and whatever, like, right. Like, but like, like I might just not be able to know. And I'm even open to the possibility that, um, that an omniscient being uh, wouldn't know. Right. You know, that like, it could be, it could be, there just isn't an exact number of hairs that you need to have in your head, not to be bald. Well, I want to say something about the utilitarianism and punishment. And just to clarify, um, I'm using the, I was using the profiling 
example um, because I think it's a very clear example of kind of what we would normally think of as discrimination. Um, and I deliberately framed mm-hmm. it in a somewhat inflammatory way. Um, so I apologize for that. I, um, With much less equivocation than Harris himself uses, though, so I admire that. <laughs> well, I am a big fan of Harris's, so I have learned from the master. Um, but also, um, I'm not actually sure on a practical level whether a profiling is useful at all. And um, I don't want people to be discriminated against for no reason. So as a practical point, I think we should probably err on the fact of not profiling because I'm not convinced it's sufficient. Um, But I'm okay with profiling, even though it clearly is discriminatory, discriminatory. It's sexual discrimination. And in my kind of um, an age based discrimination, I guess, and in my kind of imaginary scenario, it's even racial discrimination. That's an imaginary scenario. That's something uh, that Harris waffles about a lot, but yes. Right, right. But but I'm using it deliberately because is there a situation in which a kind of discrimination we would normally find repugnant, we would be okay with for the greater good? And several of my friends who are who get profiled a lot at airports um, have said that they are okay. They actually are fine with it. Um, and they even sort of want to be profiled because they, they want to know that the airline is keeping everybody safe. Um, and I, I think probably profiling is probably doesn't work. So um, I'm actually against it, but <laughs> I'm taking that as an example. But I think this is about levels of suffering. So we don't want to we don't want to um, increase the um, unduly increase the amount of suffering to any individual singled out. So um, we have to the person. I, having killed John, need to now go to prison and maybe even be executed, but I shouldn't be tortured, for example. There's no point in increasing my suffering. Sure. I, I totally understand that, that, that point, right, though? So uh, that, like, I think where somebody who's a rights forfeiture theorist and somebody who's utilitarian about punishment are going to agree is that we should have, like, vastly more humane prisons than we have right now. We shouldn't like, we shouldn't be punishing people one iota more than we need to in order to, you know, bring about the the greater good. Right. I think that part yeah. is going to be a group agreement yeah. on. Uh, and, and I also take, and I also take your point that, um, that it matters for these calculations, right. That like, okay. Uh, that, you know, it matters how much, uh, inconvenience or suffering somebody is undergoing, right? That like uh, 10 extra minutes at the airport is, you know, like regardless of what one thinks about profiling, right? You know, that if profiling were, were, were something that was good to do, 10 extra minutes at the airport uh, is, is, is like something that it's okay to do, even though on some level it's a little unjust, uh, but like life in prison or execution, you know, wouldn't be okay to do uh, to the person who is innocent in the race riot case. Uh, because there isn't enough of a greater that that the um, that it's too much to do to an innocent person, and I actually totally agree with you about both of those things. But where I would push back 
is about whether we can really make a distinction if we don't believe in moral responsibility and uh, we're just operating in purely utilitarian terms, whether that distinction about unjust, you know, that there's that we're balancing injustice against the greater good, whether that even makes sense in the first place. Because if you say, like, okay, in the race riot case, that um, let's say you have somebody who's an actual violent criminal, they really are guilty, and so you think that, like, amount of greater good X is going to be served by, say, imprisoning them for the next 20 years. That, you know, that, like, X number of lives are going to be saved, perhaps. Well, uh, if you don't believe in moral responsibility, then your whole calculation is just, um, you know, since we're not talking about what somebody deserves or what they have a right to or what they would have had a right to if it wasn't formulated, we're just talking about, uh, about the amount of suffering you're putting them through for 20 years in prison versus uh, the um, the amount of greater good that's being served. You know, the X number of, innocent, of, of, of other people's lives are being saved. Well, you could uh, then, then I don't really get the distinction between the guilty person who's being locked up and the innocent person in order to save their potential future victims and the guilty person who's being locked up in order to calm down tensions. There's no race riot because either way it could be the, the exact same distinction that, that there, this one life is being ruined to the extent that's necessary to bring about this greater good versus X number of people who would have died, whether those be their own victims in the first case or whether those be the victims of the race riot in the second case, without a distinction, without like a moral distinction between about innocence, which seems to rely on moral responsibility. I don't really see how to differentiate those cases. Right. I, I see what you're saying, and I I sort of have to agree with you. The opposite argument, the scapegoating argument, um, this is the basis of the Christian religion, and I've always thought that Christianity was a very ghoulish religion for that reason, um, that it sets out as something moral that you punish, you torture and kill one innocent person in order to save some large number. It's it's omelas writ large, right? That's the parable. Pa- parable. And this is the same thinking that we had in human sacrifices in, in kind of pre-Christian and pre-Judaic times. This is the same thinking behind um, that. I can, can't remember what this group of people were called, so uh, correct me if you remember, but um, the the uh, site that was recently found in Peru, where this large um, group of people had gathered together, and I think that the archaeological record suggested that w- that it was during a drought, and they had killed um, their children and llamas. And there's a giant mass grave there of children's bones and llamas' bones. And you can, in fact, see in the ground, the archaeologists could see the footprints of the la- the hoof prints of the llamas. The children were presumably carried. The hoof prints of the llamas up to a certain place where the llamas could see the slaughter grounds. And from there on, instead of hoof prints, we have these really deep drag marks in the soil where they dragged the llamas across. That kind of that whole idea of propitiatory sacrifice, that's what the race riot example is about. Um, 
and it's yeah it's Iphigenia in Aulis um and that is very very creepy and I don't I don't have a rebuttal maybe John does but I have no rebuttal uh no I don't have a rebuttal you guys have gone a, a bit afield on this I'm I'm following your conversation um and uh you know, my position on this debate between freedom of will and a retributive versus restorative justice is uh, we just need to reconceive the way we deal with criminals. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a fan of restorative justice. I think that um, we just need to take a different approach to how we deal with people who do bad things. Um, you guys are discuss you guys are in the weeds here about um whether or not and and to what extent to um punish um people who are not who whether or not and to what extent we should punish people even if we don't think that they're morally responsible um and i i, I to be honest i've gotten a little a little confused well, i mean in I, I think that you guys are i doing. think that all three of us are on the side of you know, favoring, you know, roughly something like restorative justice, thinking that, like, uh, thinking that we need, you know, severe criminal justice reforms that, you know, um, that, you know, we, um, that we should have a much more minimalistic, uh, a much more minimalistic criminal justice system, much more focused on rehabilitation, all that good stuff, right? I think that the, I think that for the most part, when it, on, on that area, at least the, the political goals are the same. The question that interests me is what's the relationship between those goals and uh, denial of free will, moral responsibility. And just to kind of tie it back to where we started um, the, you know, what, what I find interesting about this is that I hear two different lines from uh, skeptics about free will, moral responsibility, uh, and I think it's important to kind of see where they come apart. One line is uh, we is that um, is that like nothing changes, or maybe we just kind of have to pretend that we believe in free will when we're thinking about um, you know we were thinking about criminal punishment uh, that you know that it's uh, even though we don't really believe in it. That's one line. Uh, the other line is when people say, no, 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 this is actually good, right? This will actually serve these positive, humane re-envisioning of criminal justice uh, to, uh, to, to deny the existence of moral responsibility because that takes us away from this harsh retributive view uh, of criminal justice and towards this, uh, this nice, um, you know, more humane, rehabilitative kind of view. And what I've been trying to argue is that it's actually the other way around, that actually... Um, that actually uh, the out of the different views that we could take about criminal justice, uh, criminal punishment, the view that's going to be the most uh, minimalistic and enlightened and, you know, and, and, uh, and uh, you know, is the one that's, is the uh, rights forfeiture view. And that view does seem to me to rely on, on belief in moral responsibility. That if, if I think, I think that if we, if we deny moral responsibility, then the only way that's left to us to continue to make sense of punishment is one in which to use the terms of 
that very interesting and very eloquent um, thing that Iona just said about Christianity and all that, which I'll com- I completely agree with all of that, um, that like, I think if you're a pure utilitarian about it, then punishment is kind of a propitiatory sacrifice that, uh, uh, you know, because you, you're doing something that's, um, you're, you, you know, that you're just purely using the person who's being punished to bring about these, uh, this, this greater good. And my worry about that is that if it's justified, if that calculation is justified in that case, then we could also justify it in these other cases, like the race riot case, and that part. That those are just kind of classical objections to utilitarianism. But I guess maybe a, maybe a different way of, of expressing the worry is if somebody's going to say, "No, don't worry about it. We can still make sense of everything we think about criminal punishment without free will." here's how we do it. We'd just be pure utilitarians about it. Then I would say, then you have to grapple with all the sort of traditional objections to utilitarianism about criminal punishment. And if you want to say, no, 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 I'm not a pure utilitarian. I think that I, there's some mixture of considerations. Then I think you sort of need to show that that mixture of considerations is consistent with uh, denial of moral responsibility. And, and I'm skeptical about that. Um, ben, so I'm dying to say several things. I apologize for being in the weeds, um, but I'm only in your weeds, your you're personal only, weeds. You're only in my <laughs> weeds, Iona. Uh, honestly, the, I, I just haven't put a good deal of thought into how to go about administering justice uh, in the absence of, uh, of free will uh, and, and moral blame. I just haven't looked that deeply into it, so that's part of the reason I've, I've been kind of sure, quiet. Sure, I've got two... Um, I have because I edited both of Ben's articles. So um, anything that you read in Ben's articles that sounds like an infelicitous phrasing, you can blame it on me. And anything that is brilliant is, of course, his. Um, So I have been thinking about it. I have kind of, I guess, um, a nitpicky sort of objection to the race riot example because I think that... um, Iphigenia and all is the sort of sacrificing your daughter to the god of the winds is when you're all united together, the entire community making a sacrifice, um, which mm. which I think is a horrible, horrible idea. Um, that kind of sacrifice might propitiate, but I think when a race riot is starting, sacrificing an individual person is extremely extremely unhelpful um i mean a lot of the a lot of the worst riots and massacres that happened um in india historically um were set off by one particular person um doing an action so for example indira gandhi was killed by one of her sikh bodyguards and then a a, a huge number of um other Sikhs who had nothing to do with the bodyguard whatsoever, and he was and he was executed. He had been punished at that stage. It was very clear who did the action, and he was held responsible and punished for it. And nevertheless, the riots erupted, and um, thousands of people were killed in those riots, mostly Sikhs. And I think that that example also highlights something else, which is that I don't think that the question of whether or not we believe somebody to have free will 
um, really influences how morally we, how ethically we treat them. And my counter example is racism. So um, there has historically and continues to be enormous amount of prejudice against people and unjust treatment of people based on the color of their skin. And no one believes that we voluntarily choose our skin color. So we seem to be capable of all kinds of cruelty and injustice that is not based on our assessment of whether or not something is a voluntary choice. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. Uh, well, I, I don't want to. I don't. Um, I don't want to drag things uh, things out any, any further. But I, I, I certainly what you just said is true. Um, and and I don't think that most ways in which people actually treat other people well or badly uh, are are based on uh, well thought out philosophical combinations of views. Uh, I I do think that it's possible, uh, as I've tried to argue earlier in the episode, that um, that there could be ethical consequences in terms of how it would make sense to treat people. Um, but I also do agree with you that uh, those ethical consequences by themselves aren't decisive. It, it could just be that you know the truth is very horrible. And um, and that even though the ethical consequences of, are bad, it's just true that we we don't have free will, right? That's not why I think we have free will. The reason I think free we have free will is that we seem to, and there seems to be a way of making sense of it that um, that doesn't uh, that doesn't rely on saying anything empirically dubious, uh, and and that the um, and that even though some of them are interested and give me pause. I think that all of the arguments against it um, are um, are not, to my mind, ultimately compelling. Well, I agree. Yeah. Go ahead, John. During your break, Iona, uh, Ben and I returned to the Westboro um, Kyle uh, scenario, and I was pressing him to try to draw an interesting distinction between someone who is exercising some kind of autonomy or freedom, uh, that is to say they're exercising their own agency as opposed to someone whose agency is being um, influenced by an external agent. Um, and, you know, to me, um, that's an area that, you know, maybe in a future podcast we could explore a little bit more. I don't know how productive it would be, but one thing that I was about to ask him before you got back and that, uh, and that which is interesting to me is just how, Ben and I, or Ben and you and I, uh, Iona, um, just sort of arrived at our distinct conclusions and our uh, different attitudes towards this. So, I mean, it, it is interesting to me, you know, the three of us, you know, three intelligent people, we've looked at a lot of evidence, we've looked at, we've had different life experiences, and yet we've arrived at fairly strong, um, strongly different views, uh, with respect to this question of free will. I mean, Iona, you and I are very similar. Ben, uh, you know, his compatibilist views, I think, are probably the most uh, popular, at least in the sort of the academic or the uh, philosophical community. Um, I'm a hard determinist, so I'm with guys like uh, Paraboom and Smolansky and um, some of these other guys. Um, um, but so I, I guess, so here's my sort of final sally 
here. And again, sorry for kind of dropping out during your guys' conversation about justice. I just, you're ahead of me in that respect. I didn't think I had all that much to contribute. So you're sitting in, this is the scenario I brought up, Iona, very quickly. You're sitting in a, in a jury booth. Uh, one of these Westboro people has committed some horrible hate crime. And you're tasked with determining whether or not they are really responsible in a, in a morally blameworthy sense. I mean, we can all agree that they uh, have committed the crime, um, but the question is whether or not they are blameworthy in a sense of, you know, deserving our um, our wrath or our condemnation or some kind of retributive punishment. Well, I don't believe in retributive punishment, remember. Oh, okay, fine. Well, um, so we're not just going to call them um, – we're not just going to say that, yes, we can attribute the act to them. We're going to blame them in some morally significant sense. And that's going to determine on Ben's account, determine on the question of whether or not that person's action has arisen as a result or as a, or as a consequence of their, quote-unquote, own agency sufficiently and not as a result of some kind of external agency, whether you can understand that as hypnotism or upbringing or assimilation or enculturation. Um, and I asked Ben, how would you make this distinction? How would you make this determination? And Ben's response was, I'm going to be honest. I don't know how I would. I don't know. It would be very painful. It'd be very hard. And I said, well, where would we begin? And then you came back on. And I was about to say, um, and this is the point I've been driving at, is it's interesting to me that um, my disposition has just sort of led me to conclude that, well, not my disposition and a set of argumentation that I haven't been able to bring up over the course of this conversation, um, is that there's no such thing as autonomous agency. Um, I think that we are a product of our conditioning. We're a product of innumerable sources uh, and conditions that impinge upon us, that determine our way of thinking. Um, and I just don't see a confident uh, way to draw any lines. And I know, so then, Ben, you throw back the sorties question. Um, but again, it then it becomes a question of, geez, well, how is it that Ben and I see this differently? What What is, what is how... What are the set of experiences? It's kind of a free will question. What are the set of experiences or thoughts or or or, or uh, courses you've taken or books you've read that, that that have that have made it such that you've wound up with this particular view, and I've wound up with mine? It, that's just a, it's an interesting question for me. Um, yeah, I guess I'll just leave it there. I don't. I, I could keep pushing this, but. You know, we've been at it for a while, and uh, and I don't know if I'm going to make a lot of headway. You know, my thesis was a lot about the constitution of self, the deliberative process, what goes on when we try to make up our minds. And um, I just uh, I just don't see – I don't see this uh, – I don't see a plausible account for the kind of ownership that you attribute to uh, people's reasons response mechanisms. Uh, uh, it's interesting to me that you found that you wound up with that view and, uh, I'll be looking more, more deeply into it and maybe asking you some more questions about it. But yeah, that's kind of all I have to say about that. Well, I'll just add that I had a, um, an exchange with Ben on Twitter where, um, well, he was, he tagged me in the exchange where he said, this is an interesting article, but 
I, I think Iona doesn't understand compatibilism. And then he reported that his wife had re- replied, that's because it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that is true. She did say that. <laughs> this, is, this is something we have argued about many, many times. She'd be on your, she would be on you guys' side of the argument. Um, Kant, the famous Immanuel Kant referred to compatibilist accounts as a wretched subterfuge and as word juggling. Yeah, on the other hand, um, David Hume was right about just about everything, and he was a compatibilist, so compatibilism yeah. was probably correct. Yeah, there you go. Interesting, interesting. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting that what I find interesting about this discussion, and I'm really, really – um, I wouldn't even say I'm new to philosophy. I'm not even in philosophy. So I'm not even new to it. I'm just standing outside looking from outside. And what I find super interesting is that these are questions that are deeply concerned with ethics. Um, but at the same time, there is not an, a kind of morally good and a morally bad stance on this. Um, and I think that's very instructive, actually. You know, I don't think there's not even a poli- there's not even a kind of political right and left on this. So Ben and I are both enthusiasts for Bernie Sanders, for example. Too. Um, and yeah, and we have completely opposing views on this. Um, so there's something very enjoyable. <laughs> Maybe that's why I have been rambling on at such ad nauseum length and i don't know if anyone is if anyone out there is still listening um charles charles in melbourne is listening because he is always he always listens to these hello charles thank you so charles strebor thank you so much for being a loyal listener um and probably matthew pitzinger hi matthew um i don't know if anyone else is out there but um it's just uh, there's something very kind of healing and enjoyable about going in depth in moral questions, but without anybody, without there being even any possibility of accusing anyone of being the bad guy, because it's not, there's not a morally right and a morally wrong side on this. Yeah, I actually, uh, so the reason that I ended up having the letter exchange with John is that the, um, uh, one of the two Rathbones uh, had uh, had contacted me about uh, writing some stuff for the Letter Wiki. Uh, this was a while ago, and um, and I was I was thinking about what I want to do for that. And since uh, I I just you know published this book that uh, had a lot to do with um, with political arguments, and and I was going around doing things to promote the book. And, and, and one of the reasons I approached John with this is I thought it would be so refreshing to you know, just be able to, to take a break and just like argue about this, like interesting philosophical issue that had absolutely nothing to do with politics. Uh, although I, I guess in the last thing I wrote for you, I did, ru- I did kind of ruin that by suggesting at the end that there might be a, a political upshot after all. <laughs> well, I took out a little bit of your um, praise of Bernie, actually. <laughs> I removed it from the article because it wasn't relevant. Um, I think you did. <laughs> um, I disclaim that authors do get a chance to vet their finished thing, um, even though I agreed with what you said because I also 
I also want Bernie to be present. As always, the edits were good. <laughs> um, but I didn't think it was germane to this argument because it doesn't doesn't really have anything to do with politics in that sense. Yeah, agreed. Um, I, I, I'd, I'd like to add just, a, a, if, if you wouldn't mind, just a couple things here. Mm, yes, one please. Is, one is that um, I have to say that when it comes to the free will question, and including Ben's position, um, I, I act as if <laughs> I believe in freedom of will. I blame yeah, all the time. I judge people, including myself, all the time. And if you could x-ray my mental process and like write every thought and every reaction down on a piece of paper and read it, you'd think, oh, this guy believes in free will. Um, mm. So, you know, I think that these, these attitudes we have are so deeply built in. And beyond that, I mean – you know, I, I give people credit, I blame people, I set goals for myself, I do all these things that seem to suggest that I have a deep, deep belief um, in this this kind of, um, this in some kind of freedom of will, I guess. Um, so it's strange because, um, you know, my intuitions, as I said from the very beginning, are really conflicted on this, you know. Um, on one hand, I, I act as if I believe in it. Then I take a step back and I look at the situation from a distance. And when I do that, um, my intuitions suddenly seem absurd. Someone who's written really nicely on this is Thomas Nagel in, in A View from Nowhere, where he contrasts these perspectives, one of which is the subjective perspective, you know, the first personal perspective, the, the uh, future um, um, leading perspective, um, and then the theoretical or the meta metaphysical perspective. And, he's, and he says that these two are just completely incompatible. Um, and he says that um, one of the lines I like the most about his essay, I think it's called Free Will. And if you from nowhere, he says, to his knowledge, no, no one has yet written really good work uh, on this topic. No one has decided the, um, decided the issue con conclusively for him. So it's, it's a deeply knotted, twisted, strange topic. And I think that anybody who thinks um, that anyone who's completely positive one way or another probably hasn't looked deeply enough into it. So I'm torn and I'm interested and I understand the appeal of, of, uh, of Ben's compatibilist argument. Um, you know, Fisher and Revisa do a great job. They are the gold standard of of compatibilism and reading through their work uh, while I was writing my thesis, I was thinking, yeah, man, these guys, these guys did a great job. Um, and I had to work to figure out ways around it. Um, and I constantly am. So, uh, so I, I really appreciate, um, uh, an opportunity to have a straight up philosophical conversation. Certainly that does not descend into some kind of nasty political wrangling, which I deal with in my group all the time. So, uh, just a big thanks uh, to Ben and to you, Iona, for setting this up. Uh, it's it's a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. I, I don't want uh, – I'm going to try not to waffle on too much, but you did ask 
why, what draws people to certain views. And I think it's different for each individual. But I'm attracted to kind of non-belief in free will for the same kinds of reasons that I'm attracted to stoicism. Mm. I'm like a, you know, a fat person reading diet books. Well, I'm also a fat person reading diet books, literally. But by analogy, um, I'm a fat person reading diet books. I'm my, probably the deepest roots of um, my my episodes of clinical depression is this really, really deep self-blame and remorse um, and regret for things that I did for which I hold myself responsible. So mm. I think um, maybe we look to the... Um, and stoicism is good for me because I'm extraordinarily reactive and, and trying to control things that are out of my control. Do you have any final thoughts? No, I, I, I was just thinking about what you said, and, and I think uh, I think that's really interesting. I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to pretend to have the uh, enough introspective insight to have anything interesting to say about why I'm attracted to. Uh, um, you know, to, to the view that, uh, that I have, except maybe just to say that, uh, I, I guess it does fit a pattern for me that if, um, that if I can sort of, um, that if I can, uh, use philosophy to make sense of things that on a sort of common sense level seem to be true, even though of course those things are not always true, as was pointed out at the beginning of the discussion, uh, you know, the sun certainly seems to be going around the earth, but it isn't so. Uh, but, but I, I, I do, I do have a, a strong prejudice in terms of at least trying to make a go, uh, um, to make a go of those things. But I, I think that's the closest I have to any insight about why I have the position that I do. Well, thank you both so much for coming to join me. Thank you for listening. Anybody who is, who is still here listening to this mammoth discussion, it has been hugely fun. Bye-bye, everybody. Have a lovely week. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant. Edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At Ariel, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ariel and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ariel A. R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, Take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.